0: Welcome to Bomb by Numbers, episode 42, and happy 4th of July to all of our American listeners. It's the 4th of July on which we're recording, and happy Canada Day, uh, three, yeah. days, three days belated. Yeah, belated, belated, belated
1: Canada, Canada Day. belated Canada Day, and happy 4th of July.
0: Absolutely, yeah. How, uh, how's everybody doing, guys? Doing pretty good. Uh, also, I think we had a birthday recently. Oh, we did, yes. I believe uh, the BFG himself, Joshua Dwight Gordon-Taylor, turned 24.
1: <laughs> no, I nope. turned thirty-nine. Ah, thirty-nine. Ah,
0: I do. I do indeed. Thirty-nine beautiful years of age. Yes, the world's been better these thirty-nine yes. years, Josh.
1: <laughs> I had a great, I had a great birthday party in my in my family in my COVID family bubble. Uh, what did you do? There you go, chicken <laughs> burgers and just you know, just <laughs> me and my sister and, and my and my dad and my mom. I played some Gwent with my sister
0: gwent now i saw something josh on facebook with like the thor's hammer or something explain briefly for our listeners this game because okay. i'm i, I know uh, that yeah. you guys are all into your your rpg uh and your your board games i would love to get back into that world and maybe when my kids are older i'll be able to with them. <laughs> but right now it's not a, it's not something for me but t- tell us about this sh- this this game
1: well the game belongs to my sister okay. um I'm not a huge fan of like uh the witcher as she is which is a tv show on netflix based mm-hmm. off of a video game based off a series of books uh, yeah. uh, by, a, by a polish fantasy writer okay uh and in the in the in the world of the witcher this medieval slavic magical world that it p- portrays there is a a card game that mm-hmm. the main character uh geralta rivia plays in the tavern yep. called Gwent. Mm-hmm. okay and, and so what it is basically is it's like it's the physical manifestation of mm-hmm. that game like uh, so it's a card game and even though it has the window dressing of like a fantasy elements and all this stuff to the game that kind of mm-hmm. reminds you of magic yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it's actually all about the numbers it's all no, about i see it. it's all about numbers that's, so so thor's different. hammer thor's hammer is not really that important no well, it, well no that was <laughs> important. Uh, i'm not going to dismiss munir what's our or mu Mew, Mew, uh as, as it was finally called and the oh that's right. Uh, uh, remember? Yeah, I remember Cat Denning's character? And uh, yeah, she what called what it called. Mew, mew. She called it mew mew because she couldn't pronounce yeah. Scandinavian. Anyway, um, so yeah, uh, my sister got me what I thought was a replica of Thor's hammer from like mm-hmm. Marvel Comics and the Marvel cinematic <laughs> universe that you you see in the films recently. Mm-hmm. And what it was is like in the box, it's the full hammer sledge, mm-hmm. but 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 the shaft is separated, and it looks exactly like the, ha- the shaft, right. the handle. But, but but it has an actual hammer at the end of it. But then you notice these latches mm. on it <laughs> when you when you bring the latches apart it's actually a tool kit.
0: Oh, tool I see a yeah.
1: on the on the inside. Super cool. Yeah. Okay, so this is yeah. for your
0: DIY stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this, so this and but what it's great though is it pulls up back together cuz you put the hammer right in the center right and it locks up around it so it looks fully like when you, when you put it on display in your living room, it looks like it's Thor's <laughs> okay. hammer. Exactly, that's right. so what like I that, like. It's hmm. like that scene of in like I so in my in my in my um, living room now. I can have people over, and it's kind of, <laughs> kind of be, be like mantel pieces. <laughs> well, yeah, but do you remember Jeff uh, in uh, in Avengers: Age of Ultron when they're having the party in Stark Tower? Everybody's yeah. trying to lift Stark's... Oh, uh, yeah. Thor's. Everybody's trying to lift yeah. Thor's hammer yeah. off the table. Because, mm. But they can't because they're not worthy, right? And Thor's just yeah. sitting there like laughing at people uh-huh. trying, to lift, trying to lift the hammer up. Mm. So maybe I'll have a situation like that in my household. I don't know. We'll see. What
2: I think you should do is... Uh... Get a fake plaque, or get your sister to do something, and mm-hmm. have and make it look like Mew Mew. Have like a little plaque under so you can put it like somewhere to like display it normally, and have Mew Mew under it like a name.
1: The correct term uh, is Muner By by the way, to all our Scandinavian, uh, oh, Norse okay. backgrounded people, uh, just want to clarify that I know it's called Muner <laughs> <laughs> One so, thing I was
2: gonna say though is, is about the what I like about it being the, like the tools within the hammer. It's like if all else fails, pack it up into the hammer and just sledge the shit out of whatever you're doing.
1: Well, <laughs> I showed my one of my friends this, <laughs> Phil. Anyways, uh, Phil said that's great. As soon as you throw that around, someone's gonna get a screwdriver in their carotid artery. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah, that's all right. I, I think I think Phil knows me better than most people, I suppose. I don't know i'm sure scott probably rick probably felt bad too like waving around like a huge heavy hammer with a whole bunch of tools in the it's body. probably pretty heavy because you got all those tools in it i I literally felt like you know like uh, hawkeye trying to get that off the table in his house <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay so you had a nice birthday uh complete with the gift of thor's hammer toolkit which is i guess on uh On on everybody's list.
2: One other birthday, actually. uh, Josh uh, shares a birthday with a good friend of mine, my dog, Homer.
0: Oh, Homer, yeah. He
1: turned a year old.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Very nice.
1: Uh, We also share a birthday, (laughs) Homer (laughs) and I, and I'm not talking about the Greek poet. I'm talking about uh, Homer Simpson, of course, or Homer the dog in this case. Mm. We also share a date, a birthday with uh, a famous figure in history. That figure Mm -hmm. had the month of July named after him.
0: Oh, that's right, Julius, yeah. our man J. Guy is Julius Caesar. That's right. <laughs> Same birthday as you, our that's man right. in Rome. <laughs> okay. Today, gents, today does mark um, Independence Day, and in, in, in the United States now it's a strange Independence Day. Not, mm. uh, I mean, neither of us are there, obviously. No. But it would be strange. I'm thinking for those, you know, in in want of celebration.
1: Well. There's sprinkles of uh, uh, of hope, I think, that I'm looking towards, but I, I'm, I'm not. I'm being very hesitant to jumping on that bandwagon as of yet.
2: Hmm. Uh, it, it's it's a tough situation for everyone to be in, and um, this is why we do these kind of podcasts because it gets people to just sort of get their minds out of something, you know, of that and and something else. And this is gonna just be a little uh, nice nice distraction um i think if if we can open at least one person's eyes or ears i suppose in this case Mm. uh to you know james bond or even some of the other non uh the non-bond films Mm -hmm. and uh, or even just get them into uh you know film film in general and and, uh just sort of maybe getting them into another hobby like this that's 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 great it's all good yeah
0: it's true this is the end of our three non bonds. Yeah, the Iger Sanction is today's focus. 1975 film, on? 1975 Ooh. film directed by Clint Ooh. Eastwood. And this was my choice, guys.
1: Um, this was my choice. And I'll say a little bit about that. But Was it, your choice somehow influenced by the John Williams score? I mean, was it the John Williams score that brought a, you to watching this movie? I'll be honest. This
2: doesn't, yeah, I, I'm a little, I, I would not have pegged you as like a person that may have thought like, I like if someone had said this is like a, a movie that Scott would have picked, I would have been like, "Oh, really?" Like, I I wouldn't have necessarily mm. have thought that, but mm-hmm. but it but it was cool. Like, I I see. Yeah,
0: it's good. Well, I tell you guys, you know, um, and you'll know this. and Josh, you've shared this in, w- with me to a certain extent. I mean, I've been mm-hmm. a fan of uh, classical and orchestral and film music for a long, long time, and I was quite blessed growing up because i grew up in a kind of musical home everybody played an instrument uh and i played in band and you know i was a percussionist and i played the piano Mm -hmm. and all that stuff so i was i was quite lucky that i got my lessons early and i learned music theory and all that sort of stuff
1: yeah what instrument did your sister play piano oh
0: Uh, yeah pam was Uh, piano pam's uh, higher in piano than i am in terms of uh, like conservatoire levels and things like that I, I but
1: she, anyway, I, I, for some reason I can't picture her playing the piano. It's, it's really weird.
0: I can't believe you've been around our family this long, buddy. And you don't know 39 years as you boast and you don't know, <laughs> you don't know what my sister played. Yeah. She plays piano. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Good. uh, but that's by the by. All of that's just to say that you know f- had an early interest in f- film, like so many of us, and an early interest in film music, like so many of us. And yeah, of course, you know, when you're a kid, John Williams is writing the soundtrack to your life, right? You get your Star Wars, you have got your Jurassic Ooh, Park, your Radiators yeah. of the Lost Radiators of the Lost Ark. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different film. Uh, yeah, and so, indeed. yeah, I mean, when I when I became a teenager, uh, late into my teens, and I started, you know, the collecting bug, which which I guess hits people in different ways. Um, and film music became something that I searched out and listened to, um, then, yeah, Williams was, was was big on that list. And growing up where we did, Josh, you know, in the kind of remote parts of, uh, of Canada, it wasn't easy to get a lot of, his lesser-known scores, can, and certainly the, no. uh, the Iger sanction was one of them. So I think with the advent with the advent and the domestication of the internet, you know, you're starting to visit sites and you're getting on yeah. forums and and chats and stuff, and you hear little bits or clips here uh, or there that have been posted. And I really loved the Iger sanction theme. I knew nothing about the film, yeah, oh, nothing about the film, <laughs> but I loved that period of Williams's career. Like John Williams, mm-hmm. to me, in from 1975 to '85, if you. Just yeah. take one decade from him boy boy, what a a period it's a very
1: kind of raw sound from Williams because you can see all of his influence in that period Mm. uh, go into like his scores and he hasn't quite got you know he hasn't quite reached you know the grandiosity that he would get you know a uh, Jaws was definitely because Jaws came with wow. the same year as the Eiger yeah, sanctuary right. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. So, <laughs> so, so different scores, but you can kind of see that how he was still playing with things. And oh yeah. I yeah. feel that it wasn't until like about Star Wars and Superman when he's really started to kind of get into the grandiose kind of stuff. you know? Yeah. Well, Absolutely. I, I don't
0: agree with you on that point, and I know this is a oh, different conversation yeah. because you know the Irwin Allen disaster films like Poseidon Adventure and uh, the Towering Inferno; those are big scores too. And Williams yeah. was writing those before he wrote this. I mean, he, he was very much, a, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He did. He's a jack of all trades, right? Um, and he could—he could bring quiet, and he could bring jazz, and he could bring the big. But I, I agree with what you're saying, Josh. He was still—he uh, was still understanding, you know, the, what he could accomplish. But by the time 1975 rolls around, he's already got an Academy Award. He won for his yeah. adapted score for uh, uh, *Fiddler on the Roof*. And right. he, he'd already mm-hmm. worked with Williams or with uh, with Spielberg and anyway. it's it, Express, right? It, it's all going to say, guys, yeah. that the Eiger Sanction theme and indeed the soundtrack, which only had a limited release on CD, uh, was never expanded, still hasn't been expanded in any sort of remastered way. This score kind of always evaded me. Like, I, I couldn't find mm-hmm. it. You couldn't get it. It was very difficult well, to find. And yeah. I eventually did get it on CD when I moved to Europe. Um, and I know I probably didn't need to move to Europe to do that I was over here Yo. anyway but, <laughs> but I was able to find a copy over here I guess I should say and uh, the score and the, you know I had seen the film by that point and I loved the film because I I love Alpine history and lore and I love the story mm. of Heinrich Harrer and his mountain climbing and, and sort of you know what brought him to the Eiger what brought him later to the Himalayas that whole mm. story of because Harrer is the protagonist in 7 Years in Tibet which is another Williams right. score that Jean-Jacques oh, Annaud film okay, which is yeah. so wonderful and the whole story of the Iger fascinated me when I be- when I got into university uh, particularly uh, Harrer's biography or his memoir of the first uh, Scent of the North Face the in 1938 called the White Spider, and that book is is just a phenomenal and very readable text too. I would encourage mm-hmm. anybody listening to go check that out. And so all of these sorts of things were were kind of swirling around in my mind, and uh, you guys will know that my fantasy hockey team for
1: years has been right, named yes, the Iger yes, Beasts. Right? The Iger Beast. Right. Yeah. So yeah.
0: I love I yeah. love the Iger. Uh, I love it. Iger actually its is ogre
1: for German. Is there a yeah. German for is, for ogre? Yeah. Right.
0: It is. It, it's a remarkably powerful sort of place and i was there last uh, last year i when i visited switzerland i it in fact connecting to bond i had you know you, josh you guys you guys both might know that i had uh, the lunch booked at piz gloria right yeah, i was right. i was going to go to piz gloria but i only had one day for an outing as such and i was coming from zurich i was in zurich for a few days i didn't want all of my time to be spent on the road doing oh, like so things. you went to Grindelwald. I went to Grindelwald. Uh, I I saw the Eiger, and I went to Reichenbach, which was all part of you know hobbies and interests with Sherlock Holmes, yeah. Josh, and all that stuff. Or I could go Reichenbach down.
1: Reichenbach being the famous battle between Moriarty and, uh, That's right, and Holmes, Sherlock right? Holmes, yeah. Or I could go
0: down to. Um, I could go down to, uh, what's it, what's it called? What's the, uh, cable car Murren, uh, and go from Murren to the Shiltorn and Piz Gloria. I could have done it that yeah. way, but that would have been the only thing I would, I would have got to do drive, have my lunch, drive back. Yes. As opposed to this, I had a more leisurely trip through Grindelwald, through I the Bernice Oberland. I think I did. I know Bond yeah. fans would probably say no, and it was a site of pilgrimage that I really wanted to take. But with one day, I managed well, to knock uh, off two or three so sites. Tired, man. so tired, like, yes. The
2: thing is, is like when you're doing, like, I mean, it depends on the person, right? But I always feel mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. I, I'm a, like, I... You know, if you do a lot of walking, that's fine Mm because when you're on a vacation, you have to go to places, especially these kind of places where it's all walking or you're doing your own tour, but you also want to pace yourself because I'll, I'll be honest. I've really had issues where, like, I've done so much walking that I'm in so much pain that, like, I just want to like sit down and I'm not even paying attention anymore. And, and yeah, you don't want it yeah. to get to the point where you're so fatigued that you're not able to pay attention mm-hmm. to your surroundings, especially that's if you're right. on a vacation. But that's just that's my opinion. But uh, but I th- that's why I think you made the right decision in that. Uh, sense. I, I think I
0: think in retrospect I did make the right decision, and I and I have the I have the the trip to. Um, His Gloria mapped out anyway. I know exactly where I need to go and how I need to do it if I want to go back or perhaps if we, the three of us, somehow managed to get over there, I I, I could do that. But yeah, so you're absolutely right, Josh. It was my interest through film music and John Williams that, that kind of put me onto the Iger Sanction as a film. And when I was old enough, I think, to maybe... And, and I think independent enough to, to be able to have the means to go out and watch the films by myself in my own time when I wasn't working or whatever, you know, then I saw the film and I really liked it. I really liked parts of the film, not fully understanding the complications of the picture, perhaps. And yes. and I loved, I just got, kind of got caught up with it all because, like I said, by this time, the, the, the beauty of that part of the world which had appealed to me for so long um was there and as a skier you know I, w- I was quite eager to get out to the Alps w- w- and eager to get to Iger eager to get to You're Iger
2: Iger eager that's You're right Iger, so,
0: Iger, yeah uh, it, it, Williams was certainly the uh, the vehicle that I, I used to kind of get into course. this stuff and and when I saw it the stopped. film the rest of it kind of you know I was watching a lot of Clint Eastwood at the time too um yeah. There was a, okay. a teacher, a French teacher he, I worked with who was quite keen on him, and I was watching a lot So
2: that, that makes sense then because I was like – I would say, OK, I, I didn't expect it. But then I realized as you're talking now, if I'm looking – if you're checking off all the boxes that would interest you, mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. has a lot. He have checked off pretty much all the boxes that you wanted to check off. Mm-hmm. You like Eastwood. You like Iger. You like John Williams. So, mm-hmm. I mean, really, this, uh, this has – you know all the boxes that that you, as a person and your interests, would want to check out. So ah. that makes a lot of sense to me now.
0: Yeah, I, and I, I was also quite lucky because when I did see Josh, and I'm sure Jeff, you can speak to this as well, because you're you're quite a film guy. When I did spend time with Josh in the summers or in holidays or whatever, Josh. Uh, we would spend a lot of time watching movies or going to the cinema and we both had uh, a real fascination and an enjoyment of cinema but josh particularly was able to instill in me i think an appreciation for maybe some of the finer techniques and points you know as a film school guy um that i eh, kind of missed on me and so the Mm -hmm. more i learned about film the more interested i was to see this and to kind of absorb it i
1: I can see that and you i I would say on this watch and i don't know if i I noticed it as well because this was my first time watching it but i was wondering how you how you felt scott like Mm. did you not think that there was some very interesting camera angles and uh and photography in this movie i Uh, did indeed almost hitchcockian a little bit too in my opinion with like perspective and all that yeah yeah Yeah.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about hitchcock a couple times i think today um yeah but yeah so that's really the story of of where the selection came from and how i got uh, interested in the in the film in the first place
1: i only knew of the movie from just in in my experience i knew the movie from the williams score Mm -hmm. uh and you know that you know, and the uh, an attractive element, you know, was the was was the Clint Eastwood aspect, and mm-hmm. old yeah. sp- and an old spy movie kind of feel that I heard that it had. So mm-hmm. I that's why I was glad to have it on the list because I finally wa- I actually wanted to see the film after all these years. Mm-hmm. So I've added, you know, I haven't seen all the Clint Eastwood films, but there's another one. There's another notch on my belt. And this yeah, is also one of the yeah. ones that he directed as well. That's right. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I think it's his third, it's the third film that he directed just to kind of go uh, It's his, it's yeah, his yeah, third the feature.
0: Show. It's his third feature, but it's his fourth credit because he, he'd done uh, a, yeah. uh, he'd done a smaller piece that, uh, you know, a smaller yeah. 30 minute uh, show. But,
1: it's also the beginning mm-hmm. of his partnership with Warner Brothers which is a long yeah that yeah. goes that's from that's right well it's this gone- this is yeah. the end
0: it's it's the end rather of his partnership with Universal uh, it was Universal mm-hmm. yeah yeah I'll say I'll say I'll, I'll fill you guys in on that are, you, are, are we ready to go guys are yeah, we just I, ready I, to get into this we
1: are ready let's climb the Iger let's climb the Iger after alright guys
0: well look uh, listeners thank you very much for joining us here on episode 42 we hope you enjoy our take you yeah. uh, three non-bonds through the Iger sanction the last of our three non-bonds for this series but we'll come back to season 3 and we'll have maybe another little mini series of these um, I would yeah, just like to
1: pitons, grab your uh, your eyes <laughs> and grab your uh, your climbing gear and uh, let's ascend this <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: So then, uh, just a reminder, we have, typically when we do the Bond film reviews, and uh, as we have been doing, we're giving you some production information, we'll do a plot summary, and then we'll do our money penny scoring. And today, we're going to start with production notes on the Iger Sanction. I am not going to give you an exhaustive run-through of everything that happened date by date in chronological order. That would be dull, that would be boring, but we will say this, spoilers ahead. So if you haven't yet watched the Iger Sanction, pause it, us, pause us. Go get yourself a copy of it and, uh, and enjoy, enjoy the show yeah. and then come back and, and uh, pick
1: and up. And a mindset that this was filmed in the 70s, not mm. in the modern day yeah. as well. I think okay. they'll figure that
0: out. i will figure that out pretty quick, I think, yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, so the Iger Sanction. Well, the Iger Sanction is based on a novel by Trevanian. Uh, Trevanian is, of course, a pen name for the author whose name here uh, escapes me. Rod Whitaker? Rod Whitaker, thank you, yeah, for Rod yeah. Whitaker, And it was kind of a novel set up as a parody of the James Bond franchise, really, up to that point. Kind of yeah. see that.
1: There's even yeah. like diamonds are forever elements in this movie, in my opinion. There,
0: there are indeed, yes. Um, now, Whitaker was a University of Texas film professor and he was clearly, as you're saying, Josh, having some fun writing with Connery films in mind, I think. I think so, too. Um, Eastwood wasn't interested in the spy or the espionage angle of the book so much. So he mm. didn't really focus too much on it when he was adapting it for the film. Yeah. This, this marked okay. the fourth time behind the camera for Eastwood. Um, as a director he wanted it to be the last film with Universal because he wasn't particularly happy with Mm -hmm. how Universal was promoting his films I suppose in terms of marketing he felt among other things that they were kind of typecasting him too much in the trailers or there was there was just too much uh, heavy connection with him having been a Western star and he was looking to branch out a little more artistically as well as directorially I think and I think that... Now, I don't know. You guys got your film history a little better than maybe I do. I, I do not know that Zanuck is an easy guy to work with or for. I can't imagine uh, he is. Zanuck is
1: known as literally and figuratively the biggest dick in the industry. Like, that guy was a piece of work. I'll I'll tell you that. Yeah.
0: Okay, well, and Eastwood, of course, isn't shy of an ego stitch either. So I can see the no, two but, of these guys not really I, seeing I, I, eye to I, eye.
1: I don't... Yeah, exactly. But I don't see... Uh, Eastwood in the same vein as I uh, would Zanuck. Mm-hmm. Zanuck was an old-school Hollywood producer. If so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Actually, I, I just want to clarify something very quickly because yep. Richard D. Zanick was the producer. Now, I know there's also Daryl Zanuck, I think was his father. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I am just I might have mixed up his father. I just want to double-check something very quickly. Okay. And so if... Yeah, I just want to make sure...
0: Well, yeah, Zanuck... Daryl Zanuck was the first and Richard came second.
1: Yeah. So I don't know, D- I don't know which Daryl one of them. Richard. No, no, I apologize. So Daryl was the one who was the infamous, like okay. old Hollywood mogul type oh, okay. guy right now. Cause right. he produced like the longest day. That's and, right. Yeah. Uh, whole, a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of things. And then of course, both him and uh, R- R- Richard produced Jaws as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. And Robert yeah. Brown, was it Robert Brown? The other one, David Brown, David, David Brown? Brown. I think yes. The other producer here. Right. Well, Anyway, gents, um, uh, I think because Eastwood was getting more interested in directing and less interested in being someone else's guy, he, he wanted to consider other studio options. And at this time, he had a nice little courting going on with Warner Brothers. He wanted to explore that. And after the Iger sanction, he moved to WB and he'd remained there for all of his directing over 35 projects since 1975. Though he did return, he did return to Universal for distribution of Changeling in 2008. But oh. apart, apart from that, he's been a WB man. Yes, uh, for sure. Yeah. But like I said, I got no idea what Rich Zanuck uh, was like to work with, but I can totally see the two of them not getting along. Um, and I, well, I'm thinking that a film like the eiger sanction even if he wasn't too hot on the spy or espionage angle of the book would have given him as director a real interest because he gets to film on location and yes. in, in making that decision he doesn't have studio heads and producers breathing down his collar the same way
1: that's right because yeah, because he yeah. because he because he, he controls the set so to speak yeah. right he's <laughs> yeah he doesn't always have producers sense. on set uh, and he yeah, just has yeah. his technicians and his uh, crew and then whatever on-location managers that are available, right? So
0: Yeah, yeah. so uh, he he wasn't terribly interested in the screenplay, but he did see it as a quick and easy way out of his four-picture deal. And like we're saying, the possibility of shooting on location would, would just promise, you know, a little bit more freedom. Is, this
2: is making a little more sense to me now mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. regarding uh, <laughs> the film.
0: Yeah, this, no this, kidding. <laughs> but I think, I get, you know, uh-huh. I think once he was there, in, on location I think that's kind of when he got wrapped up in it and really started to enjoy himself you know like I can see the ambition to to kind of get away but at the same time at some point he must have been taken by the reality of what he was wanting to do which let's face it I mean mm. it, he, he's trying to film what's really the first realistic mountain adventure on location <sighs>
2: And, I, yeah. I mean, this is, again, let's, uh, I mean, obviously when he did it, it was, you know, uh, cutting edge and all that kind of, even now, I mean, like, think about it, even now, like filming, I mean, obviously we have drones and stuff, but I mean, this is an IT, This is 45 years ago, and he wasn't young either, he was 45. That's right, right yeah. You know, yeah. and he's still able to do a lot of that climbing and coming up with these shots, and, mm-hmm. and he didn't use stuntmen, he used, like, he actually did it himself. He did, yeah, and, that's that, that, and that's incredible. A lot incredible. of this stuff
0: is good. And, and to, it, like you're saying, just... to his credit, he didn't phone in his performance, and he didn't no. go cheap on on the filming. I mean, I mean the, the film had a nine million dollar budget. I mean, we can talk about this after it pulled well, yeah. back about five million in profit. But he he didn't go cheap on anything, and he did no. he did perform his own stunts because I guess he I don't know you, you don't know if this was a midlife crisis in place of a blonde and a Corvette. I'm not quite sure, but <laughs> well, he had those. But I think it was he's a
2: physical he wanted... actor. I think it was because he want. Well, from what I read here is that he wanted, he like, cl- he wanted close-ups of the faces in, in different shots, mm-hmm. and he said, "I can't do that. If I'm using telephoto lenses, I can't have a stuntman. Like yeah. if I'm going to be the one doing this shot, if I'm the one climbing, I can't have a I can't have a stuntman because yeah. of how I want it shot." When
1: mm-hmm. they were in Monument Valley, you know, like in the Navajo territory, and and he's climbing like the totem. Well, that was not crazy. When he's climbing, not well, the toner pole was one part, but the one he was doing it before, like when he was just going up between, like, the in between, oh, yeah, uh, the, in between the, the two mesas or the two cliffs mm-hmm. or whatever, like, you could yeah. tell that was him doing it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. that was pretty awesome. Yeah, well, pretty cool. Cool. Yeah. I feel I mean, like he was doing like the cool.
2: Chuck Berry duck walk, it was
1: cool, a little bit. <laughs> it, it kind of reminded me of like that uh Nintendo game Ninja Gate, where you just like hop in in between, oh, and, like, <laughs> it's like all the way up to the very top, right? Because you just keep, it Jumping made me think climbing, of the
2: Aladdin climb. game where you just, like, run, like, you jump. It's But, yeah, it's like oh, yeah. Shinobi or whatever, where you just, like, jump from ledge to ledge or, like, uh, what is it, the um, Prince of Persia kind of thing, you know? Oh, yeah, I remember
0: exactly. that one. Space bar, space bar, space bar. <laughs> Yeah,
1: That's <laughs> <Yeah, exactly.
0: laughs> Cool. Well, look, um, I, I got a lot to say about... Well, I got some stuff to say about the filming. Uh, we can get to that, but I want to say a few things about the, 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 the producer oh, a little bit. Before
1: we continue, though... Yeah. Um, I don't know if you'll mention this, Scott, and I'm sorry to take your thunder on it. Right. So did you read who was originally cast for the role or was yes. considered for yeah. the role? Yeah. 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 Paul, Paul, Paul Newman. Paul Newman, yeah. Now, wouldn't oh. it be funny if, if he was cast and he was in the movie with George Kennedy because mm. they were both yeah. in uh, cool hand, Luke. Cool yeah, that's
2: Luke. right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine they're just sitting there eating rice at the top of the the, the pla- <laughs> as opposed to drinking beer on the top of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Man, I love George Kennedy. I gotta say, I, yeah, I, Will- I I enjoy him as a character actor.
1: From the uh, like, him and the Naked Gun was he? Was yeah, awesome. man. He was so mm-hmm. like he was a straight man. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it was very dynamic. An example of casting actors who don't come from comedy backgrounds, mm-hmm. yeah. and how well they and how well they, they can do all around that. Yeah,
0: production. Hi. it's true. Exactly. Mm. Um, in terms of the the production, though, uh, getting back to Zanuck, yes. uh, Zanick and Brown, Robert Daly was a guy who had produced all of Eastwood's well, the first four, uh, three of Eastwood's productions since *Play Misty for Me*, and he did continue in this role. But the big bosses were. Brown and Zanuck. Now, mm. um, they, luckily for Eastwood, I think, they had just come off a big success with the Sugarland Express, which was kind of unexpected. Uh, Spielberg's first well, first proper film, uh, for Universal at least. And they oversaw production of the Iger Sanction, but they were more focused on the little film being shot in Martha's Vineyard, which would come out later in the year, being Jaws. And I think when that thing started to balloon and the budget started to go up, they might have lost their focus a little bit on what Eastwood was doing, giving him even more leash to play with in Switzerland and abroad. With with the production or with the, with, with the studio looking heavily at Jaws, it kind of freed up Eastwood a bit more, which I think would have played nicely into his pocket. Ooh. Anyway, let's talk about the screenplay, okay? Because these guys are interesting. As Josh intimated, uh, Trevanian is a pen name for Rodney Whitaker, that University mm-hmm. of Texas film professor.
1: Sounds like a Roman who was adopted by another Roman. Mm. Because it has like the, <laughs> the alien at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, it <does>. uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Paul Newman was originally going to be in the role, but he didn't like the screenplay. He felt it was a little too bit graphic, uh, particularly the sort of extended death stuff at the end there. Um, but Whitaker also had a hand in helping construct the screenplay. The main writers credited are Hal Dresner and Warren Murphy. Now, I looked into these guys because I knew nothing about them. I hadn't heard a thing about them before in my life. And it's really quite interesting uh, just how little they produced, a little how little they did, and what they're known for. Dresner wrote a little bit for M.A.S.H. He helped out with Cool Hand Luke. But he was uncredited, and he also contributed to John Frankenheimer's 1969 film *The Extraordinary Seaman*, starring oh. David Nibbon, Faye Dunaway, Alan Alda, and Mickey Rooney. The reason I think that's interesting Mickey is because Fra- <laughs> Frankenheimer, of course, was in the, the, on, under the microscope with Ronan last time we got together, yeah. guys. And that film, *The Extraordinary Seaman*, is regarded as one of, or is regarded as the nadir of his entire career—like an absolutely uh. terrible film.
1: Terrible name now, too I've never, it. It. <laughs> I've never seen
0: it I've never seen it I've never seen it but uh, yeah, I just thought that was an interesting little connection to our last episode um, Hal Dresner also or, yeah Hal Dresner also wrote for the Harvey Korman show uh, and oh. get and get this one he wrote a film in 1981 a George Hamilton film called Zorro the Gay Blade which is exactly what you think it is
1: well George Hamilton yeah I think I, 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 that uh, makes sense hmm,
0: okay so yeah. some of this, I think some of the Iger sanctions, very, very un-PC and off-color humor is probably safe to attribute to Hal Dresden. Uh, like this Jack, is my like, guess.
1: Like like, like like Jack Cassidy's character? Jack Cassidy. uh, Miles Yeah, yeah. yeah. I
0: mean, yeah
2: he's, he even has, like, the Zorro mustache, let's be
0: honest. Yeah. He does, he does, you're right, man. But <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, the comedy background of writing with Harvey Corman and M.A.S.H., the fact that he's done these sort of hammy... Um, homophobic not homophobic but sort of like you know uh, on the on the nose it's, type. Not,
1: it's not campy but it's on the nose homophobia because at least yeah. i think campy in most cases it embraces that yeah it celebrates a bit yeah it, yeah right. like like would you compare like miles Mello to say mr kid and mr wince
0: yeah it's different isn't it I would, but I, I think I think they're. But,
1: but, but Mello's yeah, a bit Mr. bigger. Mister Winton, Mister Kid seem like happy psychopaths in love, though. To me, that's
0: kind of how I <laughs> yeah, about it. yeah, that's fine. Yeah. I don't yeah. feel like I don't feel like diamonds because the whole production of diamonds is a little bit um, ostentatious and glittery. I don't find that. And the treatment I mean, of Wint and...
1: Gray too,
0: right? Exactly. <laughs> I don't find I don't find that the treatment of Winton Kid is really is really sort of bigoted or either bit. Uh, yeah, okay, it's a little bit, but it's not. I don't think it's too heavily uh, embarrassing. Whereas miles, we'll talk about him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, uh, anyway. no Jack Cassidy, by the way, that's David Cassidy's father. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. And I guess the grandfather of Katie Cassidy.
0: Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah. I could see, you could see it. You can definitely see it. Yeah. This other writer, Warren Murphy, this was his very first screen credit. So I don't know how he got involved in the project, but he might have just been in Universal's pocket or he might have been Hal uh, Dresner's pal. I don't I don't really know what. But he, Josh, and you'll like this, he went on to write two Remo Williams pictures.
1: Oh, there, there, was, there was more than one Remo Williams? I thought there was only one film. No, sir. There have been at least two. Holy crap. Do you remember <laughs> Remember? I was talking about that, Jeff, the Remo Williams? Like, there was a movie I watched in the 80s. This is how it went. And there was some guy hanging from, like, the Statue of Liberty or something. And I always got those <laughs> movies mixed up with a view to a kill in the past sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, Rem- and, and, yeah, yeah. And, and oh, I'm looking bas- at it now. Basically, uh... And he basically learned his master from, like, a, a, I think it was Mako who played him, the martial like, mm-hmm. artist mm-hmm. guy, who was, like, you know, Conan's old wizened uh, narrator in Conan the Barbarian. I think it's the same guy. Yep. Make- Mako?
0: Well, Fred Ward played Remo Williams. Fred Ward, yeah. Fred Ward, yeah. And Fred Ward, uh, or sorry, uh, who directed Remo Williams? I don't recall. Uh, wait, I just a sec. I have it up here. Uh, Guy Hamilton. Guy Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah. Uh... So it all comes back, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> the six degrees of separation are, you know, it, it's kind of all here. Well, they're anyway. all
1: basically trying to make Bond franchises. Now, here's my, here's my question mm-hmm. Was Iger Sanction, like, did Trevanian do any novels besides the Iger Sanction with John Hemlock, or was that a one off book that he did? As like a parody of Bond films.
0: Well, this certainly was a one-off. I don't know if Trevanian's written any more than that. Um, I could easily find out, I guess, throughout the show. Come back to me. Come back to me. we Will do. And we'll see. Anyway, uh, right, let's get back to this, guys. The so production notes, just so it doesn't become too labyrinthine. Um, Eastwood... Wasn't really overly keen on the screenplay to start with. He encouraged more of the climbing adventure in the final draft, and he requested that some of that spy Cold War stuff from the original treatment be bled out, and it was. And regardless of what you think of the film, uh, I think the screenplay we've got is better than the one he started with. All accounts would say that and suggest that, and certainly it's different to the novel.
1: It it seems like Eastwood said, let's just drop the parody aspect Mm -hmm. of the movie. Uh,
0: That's what it seems like to me. Yeah, well, um, Murphy would go on and write Lethal Weapon 2, so... He's only got a few credits. Five credits as a writer, but oh. Lethal Weapon Two is one of them for the story. Shane, yes.
1: I, so Shane Black didn't do Lethal Weapon Two, huh? Uh, there a, the There was story was, a was written
2: uh, I mean, with it, it... Uh, Jonathan Hamlock, Just you know. Ah, oh well, I didn't know that. It was, was called the Lou know. Sanction, uh-huh, in uh-huh. 1973.
0: Jeffrey Boehm is credited as uh, the screenplay writer for Lethal Weapon Two. Shane Black and uh, Murphy
1: okay it's so Murphy and Shane Black worked on it mm-hmm. then okay sorry Whereas,
0: Jeff what did you say what did you say the Iger the Sanction uh, sequel there was a sequel so uh, obviously
2: um, the book it wouldn't be 73 though but no 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 no. but I'm not talking about a film Josh because oh, remember okay. the, oh, the book, book right? Iger book, book, Sanction yeah. came out in 72 I think mm-hmm. uh, and then it there did. was a sequel with Hemlock called mm-hmm. The Lou Sanction and it was in <laughs> 1973
0: oh wow well. right guys one of you has got to read that Oh, <laughs> away you go Homework. Anyway, anyway, filming. Let's get on to some filming. Okay, yeah, yeah. Loca- yes. Locations for the Iger Sanction included Zion National Park in Utah, the Monument Valley, the impressive Monument Valley in Arizona. I mean, these are all incredible sites, really. Yes, uh, there are various sites in Switzerland, including the Iger and Zurich, of course. Monterey, yes. California, uh, which Eastwood would <laughs> grow to know very well because he ended yes. up living there. Ooh, and yes. the film the film was really one of Hollywood's first climbing films. It didn't rely on kind of stock footage, rear projection, that type of stuff for its action. Yes. Eastwood's ambition to be on location was foremost felt, and I think it served the film very well. The spectacle of the picture and its photography really holds up today, and yes. the Blu-ray yes. representation—I've got the Blu-ray. It's, it's a real treat, like to watch this kind of widescreen Blu-ray. It's really, really good.
1: Yeah, um, I watched on. Yeah. Apple, I watched. I downloaded like the. I rented. Sorry, like the uh, mm-hmm. on Apple TV, whatever, oh, yeah. uh, or Apple. I guess that was kind of iTunes derivative, anyway. Yeah. I, and it looked it looked fantastic. And I kept I kept telling them, I kept trying to look for the marks, you know. That was that a matte day, mm-hmm. or was that some sort of you know uh, rear projection? But I could not see it. I'm like, they are actually up there. They are They're up actually there the up
0: mountains. there. Yeah, that's right. So they
1: definitely had to like nine million dollar budget, but it seems to me that they definitely had to find some way of getting the cameras up there. And mm-hmm. that movie cannot be made even ten years before due to the camera technology that existed at that time. Like mm-hmm. it would have to be made like right at the time where those new cameras were being innovated and, and stuff like that, right? So yeah,
0: rigging the mountain and getting the equipment up there was was quite a challenge. Now I'm not going to read, I'm not going to read out or kind of cite all sorts of different things. I'm just going to pull out a few interesting production notes that have to do with the filming, and then we can move on, okay, guys? But yes. in uh, late July 1974, Eastwood, Kennedy, and a small crew traveled to Monument Valley, and that, of course, was whose favorite location for filming? Western director, oh, oh John Ford, John Ford, you got oh, it, buddy. Ford, yeah, there you go. And yeah, that absolutely. was a that was a real uh, real highlight of his career for for Clint Eastwood because think of the what,
1: Searchers, right? Like that whole Monument yep. Valley background. That was the Searchers. Like, That's
0: absolutely. right. Now the 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 Rock. Um, structure the rock structure which they climb is the totem pole a 640 foot rock spire with an 18 foot diameter and 18 feet is not really that wide when you get up to the top of it but, but it,
1: it's enough to pitch a tent and have a good party up there that's for darn sure
0: i wouldn't go anywhere near that just talking about it's making my legs quiver yeah. <laughs> so, oh man I, uh, anyway and, do I, and
2: i certainly wouldn't have a case of beer <laughs>
0: uh
2: and then go back down Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like uh, I would well, want to well, be.
1: Maybe yeah, wise yeah, right. I'm not a well, case well, 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 of beer. Well, I would say getting down is the easy part because you can just kind of just like delay yourself down as long as you don't. Sure. Have probe, it's easy. Right? I think that, I think that pick <laughs> <laughs> I think I was the picture. the perspective of like experienced mountaineers. That's that's what I'm talking about. I'm not right. talking about me and you like having a case of beer on the top and then going down. No, that's but all yeah. yeah all together. George, awesome. George, that's at least we would be precipitated off the the totem pole. That's all I have to say.
0: (laughs) Kennedy is not an experienced mountaineer. And the film asks us (laughs) to suspend our disbelief, not too many times really, but the, the biggest time is here because these guys didn't climb. Yeah. They didn't climb it. It was climbed by two, um, Navajos. Okay. Because, because the Navajo nation actually, no, because the Navajo nation prohibited climbs on the rock face Mm. or the rock formation. Um, Permission was negotiated from the authorities that the to get his team up on t- on top of this this structure. So what happens is two climbers from Moab, whose names are can I kind got them written down here somewhere, uh, Ken Ken Weirich and Eric Bjornstad. Okay, they were tasked with preparing the summit for the helicopter film crew and then removing all the existing hardware. Uh, so once they got up oh, to the summit, that's right. Okay, once they got up to the summit, um, George and Clint were lowered onto that 18 foot wide summit and they sat and watched the sunset before the helicopter came back for them. But man, I, I just I cannot I cannot conceive of myself being up there. Like I'm not huh. really scared of heights, but man, it's wow. I, I like being up high. I love being up in the mountains and doing all that shit and skiing. And I, I like a bit of climbing too. But I can't handle like precipice. I, I just can't I, handle I, it.
1: I, I saw them on the edge of it there. Like Oh uh, Christ, go back in the go in the center. Go in the center. That's what I would have done. I would have gone <laughs> in the center. You know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Center. Yeah. yeah. Like, Stay there. As long as I have a spot, if I fall down and I can get myself back up that's Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's all that that's all that matters like Uh, i I just i'm a big fan of, of
2: guardrails yeah, guard so I over. wouldn't go. I wouldn't go around to the edge. Mm. I would sit yeah. right in the middle where I can lie down or sit. That's, that's why
1: I could never live in the Star Wars universe because they have so many gantries. and no guardrails mm-hmm. all over the place there. <laughs> now, supposedly on Bespin, if you fall, there's like a vacuum thing that sucks you back up and allows you to like not. Uh, 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 it's hard to. Well, yeah. maybe you
2: have the to. The fact that Josh says can't. He can't live in the Star Wars universe. It's, it's
0: a sad day. It's, yeah, a sad, it's, it's a sad day. It's kind of sad. <laughs> because you can't he, josh you can't yeah <laughs> i don't know
1: can. after seeing episode nine i don't want to live in the star wars universe
0: oh well let's not go down that yeah. rabbit hole please uh yeah, back back yeah. to the eiger sanction um yeah so basically they didn't they didn't climb that but they did sit on it for those shots and, and i mean you know the fact that we're here talking about any sort of squeamishness with the, this photography i think is a credit to what the film's trying to achieve on, on that front, oh, yeah. you know absolutely now we got a couple of interesting things going on here during this Monument Valley, Arizona shooting, Utah stuff. There were two Ford Broncos. The Ford Bronco that George characters, um, oh, yeah. that, that that's Ben cool. the character, like yeah, those are awesome. Custom built, yeah. used around the scenes with uh, Ben's Ranch and Desert Training. Those are yeah. awesome little vehicles. I'm yeah, looking yeah, at man. that and thinking, shit, I'd like one of those. That's as good. As, that's as good <laughs> as some of the Bond cars to me. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. I love that.
2: I was like, man, I would love to just rip around in that thing. Right.
1: And, and 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 the car that uh, Miles Mello and his bodyguard had, that was a pretty uh, nice car too. Yeah, a bit of a pimp mobile, but it was oh, nice. Definitely. Yeah, it was. Well, I guess I guess it fit Miles' character. I, anyway, for that yeah, scene yeah. by the way,
0: that scene where uh, Hemlock leads them out into the uh, leads them out into the desert, right? Um the <clears> dust the <throat> dust that was that was kind of brought up by the the vehicles was such um Such a, a problem for uh his bodyguard, Dwayne, who was played by Dan Howard, that he had to ride with the sunroof open so that he'd kind of stick his head out and see the road. And when that happened, Jack Cassidy just refused to sit in the car and he put a <laughs> sun double in there, thinking it was too dangerous. But even that's a really well filmed scene. Like all the desert by stuff is really cool. By the way,
1: his name is Dwayne, according to Du-wayne. the uh, credits. Yep, you're, not Dwayne. It's Dwayne. I do apologize. You sound more stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And, mm-hmm. and lunkish, you
0: know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Well, production shifted uh, to the Eiger and Klein Scheidig in Switzerland on the twelfth of August, nineteen seventy-four. And you know, instead of describing the scenes, I found a really great article from a man named Sheik Scott. It was in um, Rock and Ice magazine. There it is, Rock and Ice magazine. And it was There's written... actually a magazine called that. Yeah, and it was written. It's a climbing magazine. It was written by Sheik yeah. Scott recently, and it's all about his experience as one of the climbers during the production of this film. And I thought I could read a little bit of that instead of kind of yeah. taking you through what it, what he said, you know?
1: Of course. Yeah. So he yeah.
0: he and another fellow, guys, he and another guy named Martin Boyson, they did a lot of the climbing under the second unit direction of Norman Drenforth. And some of this information is taken uh, from this excellent article. So I encourage you guys to check it out. You can find it online, Rock and Ice Magazine, Iger Sanction. Anyway, Scott recalls this, and I quote, The crux of filming was The Big Fall, where everyone dies but Eastwood, and his subsequent rescue, a la Tony Kurtz. Masterminded by Hamish McInnes, the famed Scottish mountaineer and fox of Glencoe, the scene was shot on the Iger North Face itself. Winched by a chopper into a tiny air irie, looking over the the rote flue on Iger's North Face, we rigged an alloy ladder out into space. We then dropped three Kapok-stuffed climbers from the ladder. To freefall some thousand feet, hoping uh-huh. first unit's camera was running in the meadows below the wall to catch the shot. Then uh-huh. it was Eastwood's turn. No wonder he looks gripped in that scene. Haston, this guy Haston, uh, rechecked the ropes and the knots, and Eastwood tightened his harness around his crotch before swinging out to the ladder's end and lowering some twenty feet into space. So, I mean, Jeff, you were talking about, and Josh, you were saying how Eastwood's doing these. Eastwood is doing this shit. Like that's that's crazy. Is they-
1: it's like pre Tom Cruise, uh, that, yeah. cruise uh, yeah. that kind of uh, balls, you know, to go stuff. I like mean, he, like he that. was in pretty good shape. I mean, oh, he uh, was, yeah, he, is. he yeah. Was in, yeah.
2: He's in very good shape, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. he wasn't, but it wasn't like he had youth on his side. I mean, mm-hmm. he wasn't old but at the same time 45 mm-hmm. and he didn't have any kind of climb experience that i'm aware of
0: no he just kind of was in a good physical shape and he had to so, learn and train for the role but yeah he, and,
2: he and did being a lot in of good stuff, shape yeah. is one thing but like you know i mean if you're it's the skill and the dexterity
1: it's, required for something yeah. like yeah. that so and you the you concentration and the patience
2: yeah, exactly. You could still be like very, you know, physically strong and, and you know, you have, uh, you know, stamina and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. But it's it's the skill, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why it's it's yeah. impressive that he could do that because he to
0: have
1: mental capacity to, to do it.
0: Yeah. As, you, as you might imagine guys there were problems on the set with I mean filming in this type of a location gotcha. and I'm not speaking about the death of David Knowles we'll get to that in a second there were a couple of serious and less serious injuries that were just kind of kept from the press kept from um, the studio you know because they yeah. might have kind of shut down production at some point and certainly after the death of David Knowles Eastwood himself was reconsidering the, the whole enterprise uh, it was kind of tragic what happened Essentially, you know the scene where the rocks come down onto the climbers from above and the French climber uh, is hurt, Gets right? concussed. Yeah. yeah, well, those were plastic rocks. But after filming, uh, Eastwood and the rest of them remembered that they hadn't really, or I suppose realized, it's more a realization than a memory, that they hadn't captured enough of that kind of first-person eyeline matching footage. So right. they went back up and Eastwood had been in the same position just a few minutes earlier and David Knowles out there on the rock face uh, to get these these kind of you know looking up shots and things. That's that's what happened. He actually got hit by a really real falling rock, which is one of as Heinrich Herrer writes in his um, in his memoir of climbing the north face of the Eiger. He, he states that that is really the major threat to climbers on the rock face, apart from the difficulty of the near vertical ascent. You have um, and, and avalanches of snow, you've got rock falls and constant Ooh. rock falls. You've just got to be careful. And, and that's what happened to Knowles. So tragic there for sure. Oh, yeah. For sure. Uh, the climbers and the crew, though, I mean, apart from, from that, um, they really enjoyed working with Eastwood and especially George Kennedy. He was very personable, uh, but he wanted to get away from the mountain and uh, <laughs> as, as quickly as possible. He did not enjoy the actual peril of the filming uh, he knew he knew i mean the way he remembers it the mountains are for climbers and then he was an actor i think and that
1: he was in the chalet he was exactly, down in yeah. the chalet yeah. so kennedy chalet was he was a grown was man? Probably, that that's was probably that's right, probably yeah. george kennedy the whole time in person yeah yeah with them with the with the with the telescope you know
0: yeah it's probably uh, why why he was but it came across so well in those scenes, you know? Yeah. Uh, So believable. Well, Kennedy and Eastwood starred together in Rawhide in 1959 and just a year previously in Thunder and Lightfoot. So the chemistry they got on screen works because they've worked together before, and I I like that. Uh, Anyway, that, I mean, there's certainly more, guys, I could take you through, but I'm going to save it, if that's all right. And I'm going to save it for our discussion, for our money pennies. And instead, I'll just tell you in, in closing, I'll just tell you that the film premiered on May 21st to mixed reviews people most mm-hmm. critics respected and agreed that it was really quite sensational to look at but yes. didn't really like the story so much and it just didn't really take off in any blockbuster way. Now, the one thing I neglected to do, so our listeners maybe can do this, or, or you can fact-check, guys, if you want throughout the next little minute or two, what other films were on at the cinema in late May 1975. I mean, the Iger sanction made about $5 million in profit, so it did recoup its budget, but it didn't really take
1: off. Yeah, 75 was the year, was the summer of the blockbuster. That was the, of, yeah. that was the summer of Jaws.
0: And when was, yeah, but when was Jaws released? It would have been after this, because this, I think... I know that Williams recorded the scores back-to-back. Back. Sorry,
2: right.
0: June, is it? I got it there. 20th of June. So, yeah, exact, oh, yeah. exactly June. a month later. Near yeah, near yeah, near enough a month later to the date, yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's just talk briefly about the music, and then we'll get on to it. Cause, because it's, uh, Williams is my favorite film composer, as I know I share that interest... In- with so many others. Uh, along with Jaws, this is the only other 1975 score that Williams did. Zanuck and Brown wanted to retain Williams for the Iger sanction after the success of Sugarland express. And knowing that he was doing Jaws as well, they are that Jaws was out. They wanted him for that. He had made himself a big name already as a resident with universal studios. Mm-hmm. There are two stories, though, explaining how he actually got the job. The first, and I think probably the most likely, is that Zanuck and Brown wanted him and Eastwood approved the choice. I think that's probably what happened. Um, And the other is that Eastwood really liked Williams' jazz background and he wanted that sort of sensibility for his film. So what I'm thinking is that number two came first. Zanuck and Brown retained Williams and Eastwood then found out about or knew of his jazz background and wanted to use that for the film. Either way, what is known is that Williams did know that Eastwood was a jazz fan, and I think he milked that a little bit for the score. Uh, The score was recorded between the 29th of January and the 5th of February, four months before the film was released, and then Jaws was written after that. Uh, Typical of the 1970s sound, you got your pop, jazz, funk, even that sort of fake Baroque sound that I now understand is in a lot of kind of 70s films. Uh, if you, I'm thinking about when Hemlock's training with Arizona or with George in Arizona. You know, you get that sort oh, of like, yes. a little jumpy folk.
2: To be honest, I would have like in my I would have said that would have been more like mid to late sixties because the harpsichord okay, was okay. like was yeah. no no no, and I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying if you look at. If you're looking, and I'm just going to quickly say this, but yep. if you look at the harpsichord as an instrument, it really came back in the mid to late 60s because of, of the psychedelic sound of pop mm-hmm. music mm-hmm. and and sort of like the baroqueness and, and and that style of music. The harpsichord was very much used throughout all types of music and scores um, in the mid to late 60s. So that's why I was a little surprised that... it the The main title had a harpsichord in it, being later in 1975. But it totally works, and I I, I really enjoyed it. But I was, that's why I thought when I listened to the this that opening title, I would have it. It made me think this this would have been like a Lalo Schifrin, like a 1968 or 69 mm-hmm. score. That's why, because oh, the, yeah, the yeah. harpsichord
0: made me think of that. But I, it yeah. is a harpsichord. It's not a dulcimer, is it? I like think it is. A no, I, I think I think it is a harpsichord. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, look, that, that's just some production notes on the Iger Sanction. There's more out there, everybody, if you want to go discover it for yourself, if you like the film. and But yeah, you know, go, go check it out. But that, that's a starting point for you anyway, some interesting things. And now, gentlemen, before our money pennies, I think it's time for a plot summary. So spoilers ahead.
1: Go watch the movie right now and then come back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right,
0: gents, settle in. It's raining in Zurich, the banks of the Limit River are rising, and the film's opening scenes follow a man following another man walking back to his flat. John Williams' score sweeps through a main theme that speaks of intrigue, and the credits appear throughout this little pursuit through Zurich, until we reach the flat in question, and bear witness to the murder of a man we soon learn is Wormwood, played by Frank Redmond, an agent working for C2, a secret government agency that executes sanctions or assassins, or assassinations he's got a little He's got a little microfilm that other people want, which is never good. The high and spinny camera angles through the alleys and the opening here foreshadow the climbing that's going to become such a big part to this story later. Anyway, the microfilm is stolen, and poor wormwood is left to die on the kitchen floor while his assailant flees with the microfilm, and the camera cuts to our protagonist. Jonathan Hemlock is an art professor he 's also an accomplished climber. His classes seem pretty boring to be honest, but no one 's going to tell him that because he 's Clint Eastwood <laughs> the guys oh, yeah. the guys Rocking in his head. class the oh. guy, the guys in his class want to be him and applaud him when he finishes dull sentences, which is not by the way anything that happens in my classes. The applause i mean the dull sentences. (laughs) there's plenty of dull sentences the the girls in his class all seem to like him of course especially one played by candace railson and we get some pre-indiana jones student teacher flirting here that spills out onto the uh, office into his office post-lecture hemlock is established here as the film's hero the good guy the responsible champion because he doesn't sleep with the girl who's angling for a b average by offering herself to him instead of reading books and looking at pictures He does sexually harass her, though, uh, but I guess we're meant to ignore that because he makes a joke about not studying her ass completely off. It is an odd character moment, and more than a little unsettling. It may have worked on screen in 1975, and okay, I can put myself there, but it doesn't really hold up well in the post-Weinstein era. No sooner has she left when Hemlock is visited by Pope, played by Gregory Walcott, who we learn is a sleazy errand boy for Mr. Dragon, the enigmatic head of C2, the secret government agency that Hemlock used to work for. Pope is a mild antagonist on account of history with Hemlock that we never really understand, but he pops in and out of the story. His scenes normally end with an ass-kicking. His. Anyway. Hemlock's being blackmailed out of retirement as a counter-assassin to take care of two men who killed the agent in Zurich and are responsible for the microfilm theft. Dragon is played by Thayer David and is quite a dude. He's an albino ex-Nazi who lives in semi-darkness that looks more like Red District Parlor than M's office. He's kept kept alive by blood transfusions and the mind races to determine who he's more like. Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles (laughs) or the Komodo dragon from Skyfall. Either way, in a flimsy, uh, flimsy motivating incident, he th- he threatens to reveal Hemlock's art collection to the IRS if he doesn't cooperate. This is especially bad timing because he's expecting to pick up a Pissarro, a very rare Pizarro, later that day. Hemlock begrudgingly agrees to one of the killings only, and he demands twice his regular fee, twenty thousand dollars, which amounts today to about a hundred grand. Yes, and. Sure. He travels to Zurich where he climbs drain pipes and cringingly impersonates a homosexual messenger before carrying out the job and receiving a letter ensuring that there will be no problem from the IRS. So Hemlock flies back to America and he's met on the plane by a flight attendant, Jemima Brown, played by Vanetta McGee. They exchange the conversational equivalent of a makeout session and are soon doing it for real when they land. Hemlock hosting her at his home in the evening with a tour of his art collection, fine wine, and a jazzy little John Williams accompaniment to set the scene. (laughs) While while he's asleep, Jemima steals his money and his IRS letter, which puts him back onto Dragon's Platter, who insists that he also does the other sanction. Hemlock agrees when he learns that the agent in Zurich was none other than Henry Bach, an ex-Green Beret like himself who saved his life once in Vietnam. Dragon tells him that the target is part of an international expedition that's preparing to climb the north face of the Eiger, and that he will be the American member of that group. For this job, he's going to get half a million of today's dollars with expenses too. But first, he needs to get into shape. Hemlock travels to Arizona, where he's reunited with his old war and climbing pal Ben Bowman, played by George Kennedy, whose mountaineering school looks a lot more like Club Tropicana than a training facility. (laughs) Sure does. I guess just having rock faces and boulders nearby your pool and tiki bar constitutes a center of education. Well, a little more convenience happens when Ben reveals to Jonathan that he is in fact a ground man on the climb for which he's training. Now, we know something beyond serendipity is happening here, but George Kennedy is just so much fun to watch that we don't really care. Neither does Hemlock. And while hanging out poolside, I mean training, training for his important climb, Hemlock also encounters an old foe Miles Mello, played by Jack Cassidy, who hams up every gay man trope that was going at the time. Mello, however, is no soft touch. He was also an ally in Southeast Asia before he became important or an informant for the other side. The thought of this cartoony man, this hyperbolic distortion that would make Liberace blush also being a green (laughs) beret, it's a bit untenable. His his place yeah, in the yeah. story, yeah. I mean, I don't know. His place in the story to me is a heavy plot hammer. Uh, it does, however, enable the next few scenes to play out while nebulously strengthening the link to Henry Bach. Mello becomes the mini boss of the film's first half. He knows that Hemlock is dangerous and wants to kill him for betraying him, and that conflict is blatantly presented for us when we see Hemlock call Mello's bluff and beat up his bodyguard, Wayne who looks more than a little like Riverdale's big moose anthropomorphized onto celluloid.
2: Very much, yeah.
0: None of the other guests seem to care about this, though, as though such tussles are all part of the Ben Bowman <laughs> and ranch nobody experience. Cares. Uh, nobody cares. We know nobody cares. We know that it'll come to death for either Hemlock or Mellow, but this is a Clint Eastwood film that's only nearing its midpoint, so Jack Cassidy's time on screen can be safely measured in minutes. Mm. Anyway, the Club Med environment is engaging to watch, and the setting's lovely, but it's bizarre. Think of Gonzalez as hideout and For Your Eyes Only, but squat in the middle of the desert, and you're close to it. <laughs> but George Kennedy's cool, and he's believable. He's a little more interesting than our hero for this moment, so we're going along with it. The movie is really cool here, even if its biases are reaching the boiling point in Arizona's heat. Yeah. yeah so Hemlock returns to form with the help of George, a selectively ah. mute... Native American played by Brenda Venus whose chief strategy in motivating her student rests in showing her breasts <laughs> from a distance and encouraging them to catch and encouraging him to catch her just as she runs across Monument Valley it's sort of like an adult roadrunner cartoon these scenes are humorous to a point but they're also uncomfortable as we add to the it's objectification funny, but... uh, <laughs> it's not it's universal man
1: oh, oh yeah that's right Damn it. The
0: scenes, the scenes are humorous to a point, but they're uncomfortable as we add to the objectification of women fresh Native American stereotypes. The film's male gaze really moves out from behind the curtain and into our laps here. The cinematography and the music are great, which pull us in, but the casualness with which we're asked to comply in the misogyny of this whole thing can't really be denied. And again, not for the first time, the Iger Sanction is wearing its birthday suit and asking us to admire. One night... George appears in Hemlock's room with her gravity-repellent chest and sleeps with him. She then tries to drug him with a hypodermic, and it's learned that Mello hired her to do the job. Hemlock leads Mello and Duane 50 miles into the desert the next day over dusty terrain that's beautifully filmed, before taking care of both of them. One, by Duane, with a shotgun, and two, get ready Miles, alone in the wild like 007 does to Dominique Green in Quantum of Solace, only (laughs) without the engine oil to drink lesson learned don't screw hemlock around the film's second half begins with a transition to Switzerland and and some phenomenal photography including the breathtaking establishing shot courtesy of a helicopter over Klein Scheidegg mountain pass which eventually focuses focuses in on a lone figure staring at the imposing north face it's mountain versus man primate flesh versus primeval stone clint versus flint the mountain doesn't stand a chance somehow we just know this nevertheless it is a great cinematic moment and it's here that Hemlock meets with the rest of the team. The arrogant German Karl Freytag, played by Reiner Schoen, cuckolded Frenchman Jean Pierre Montaigne, played by Jean Pierre Bernard, and the quiet Austrian Andre Meyer, played by Michael Grimm. Hemlock knows that one of these men will be his target, so he starts the job of sizing them up over drinks and planning. Freytag is the obvious first suspect with the pride of Adonis and inspired plan for ascent. Eastwood doesn't like him, so neither do we. Meyer is a friendly, quiet guy. He feels right to us. And Montaigne is also okay from the start, but his wife has an appetite for flesh, namely that belonging to other men. Uh, Ben forewarned us of this in Arizona. Speaking of ladies, Jemima shows up again, not in her official role as C2 courier, but really to cheer Hemlock on. She comes clean about her role in things earlier, and they make up. As for the microfilm that started this all off, well, it was a MacGuffin, of course, a ruse cooked up to convince the other side that the content of the stolen microfilm and its uh, germ warfare formula, blah, 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 was actually worth something, which it wasn't, just your classic cloak and dagger fake bait, but the climb is on, and this is where we are. Pope also shows up here, just so that Hemlock can kick his ass up, down, and all over the nearby railway lines. The scene is fairly pointless, to be honest, but it does satisfy the protocol of rough-ups in a Clint Eastwood film, and (laughs) being generous, it could serve to remind us that Dragon is still holding some of the strings on this assignment. Able to offset the how-about-a-nightcap advances of Montaigne's hungry wife, played by the lovely Heidi Bruhl, but not yet able to identify the target, Hemlock proceeds with the expedition. Retreated to some more wonderful location shooting and good scenes as the climbers begin their ascent. Presumably, because he's done it so many times himself, Hemlock knows that Freytag is bumping uglies with Montaigne's wife, and fakes manchat calling him out on the mountain in the hopes of revealing what climber he needs to kill. Soon after, Montaigne suffers a bad injury from a rockslide, and the team is forced to retreat when he dies. Luckily, for any piggish audience members, Ben Bowman brought his bigotry to Switzerland, the Eiger, and the Hotel Bellevue. As George Kennedy's character follows the retreat from the hotel's viewing platform, he seamlessly rips through hotel staff and other visitors intent (laughs) on spectating the climb with the unabashed rudeness that has come to mark America to much of Europe. But he's got reason to be uppity. There's a lot of guilt sitting on his shoulders. More on that in a few moments. The retreat goes from bad to worse as Freitag, uh, Freitag and Meyer plummet to their deaths while transporting Montaigne's body. Hemlock, however, managed to set in an ice nail and is saved from the plummet, though he's left dangling for his life just feet from the famous Eigerwand Station door, which offers access to the inside of the mountain. Ben quickly assembles a rescue team and gets up the mountain from the train. A quick, do you trust the limping man moment leads Hemlock to a yeah. rope cut of faith, after which he's saved by Ben, but now almost certain that it was his old pal and neither climber that he was actually sent to kill as the train trundles through the eiger back to klein scheidegg bowman confesses all to hemlock he has indeed been working for the other side but had no idea that henry bach was killed in the proceedings as for miles Mello, ben explains that george is actually his daughter and miles helped him get her off drugs Now, at this point, the film is almost over, so whatever, wrap it up. But the idea... (laughs) That's kind of what it felt like. But the idea of Ben pimping out his own mixed-race daughter to toy Hemlock around with frontal nudity instead of hiring a girl who likes that sort of stuff to do the same, it's highly disconcerting. Also, his parenting... His parenting and his character judgment skills come heavily into question, given how easily Miles pays George to start playing with vials of dangerous opioids, having just helped her get off drugs. But <laughs> this this is actually this is actually the mystery of the story for me. But yes, wow, yeah. Whatever, whatever the case, Hemlock is reclining. The true Iger sanction. It is. He's reclining al fresco in the next scene, and he's recuperating with uh, Jemima doting by his side. So I guess none of that stuff really matters. It yeah. is an awkward moment when Ben arrives at the end to try to wipe clean the slate now dirtied between himself and hemlock even if he was a turncoat ben did save hemlock's ass when it was out there literally hanging on a line plus dragon does now think the target was sanctioned and he actually applauds hemlock incorrectly for killing all three climbers when he presumed that he couldn't identify it so i guess all is well in the end Q John, <laughs> Q. John Williams, who closes out the film in inimitable style with a brooding jazz tempo as the camera pulls away for good, leaving Hemlock and Jemima to discuss the finer points of Pissarro and how to spend his new money.
1: <laughs> Plot summary done. Yeah, pretty good job.
0: Right, good so shot. hopefully that covers, I think, most of the picture that we're about to discuss. I don't know, I missed anything, but anything you no,
1: you, you, you got good. the broad strokes absolutely yeah. and uh, I think we we might have some contention on you know on the ending and I think some other aspects of the film but uh, I think well, we're in for a good little uh, brouhaha here
0: well let's brouhaha over to our money pennies you want to explain uh, Jeff our money penny scoring
2: Yes, so uh, what we do here is we have three that we use. We have story, acting, and atmosphere, and we choose money pennies, obviously, as... uh... Currency of choice. Yes, currency of choice, correct, yes. Uh, And uh, with uh, Bond by Numbers, we use money pennies, which is obviously uh, the character from James Bond. Now, Mm -hmm. uh, I think Mm -hmm. we should probably start with Scott, uh, with uh, whichever one you want to start with. Oh, think? I just
0: I just went through a plot summary. Let's start with the BFG. Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: Well, uh I admire this concept of the twist of the climb being for nothing, uh, just mm-hmm. to sell the spy game. I really like that in the end. I yeah, that the was idea,
0: pretty like the idea
1: of like Uh the like you still feel the tension up there because Eastwood's trying to because like Hemlock is trying to find out which one is the killer. Uh, mm. But his target, so to speak, the one he's going to sanction, mm-hmm. uh, because he's hot-headed and he's full of revenge. And at the same time, he's determined. Yeah. But but back when the audience knows that more than the character does, it kind of reminds me of North by Northwest a little bit where mm. the perspective is through the audience and not through the uh, main character. Uh,
0: yeah. OK, just expand on that for a second, buddy.
1: Well, think of George Thornhill in yeah. North by Northwest. There is mm. moments where the audience knows more of what's going on than he does.
0: Yeah, you could say that for a lot of films, Hitchcock in particular. Oh, I just oh, wondered what it was about North by Northwest that you, that brought oh, that to mind.
1: Well, how he controlled the point of view of characters, and that was okay. the example. Cool. Um, but yeah, the idea of basically like this mountain climb being for nothing, but still being in the movie and working so well thematically, I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it does take a long time to get there, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's because maybe of just the advertising of the movie, or at least my idea of it, yeah, was yeah. that it was going to be like a, almost most of the movie would be like on the mountain climb
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh but instead like it it gets it's a rocky path to get there of cliches and tropes yeah. some really questionable dialogue and uh behaviors probably palatable as dark humor at the time mm-hmm. yeah, but not jive you know with today's audience
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, i feel that eastwood he's spied <clears> through Callahan in this movie um I think, <sighs> like, in my opinion i feel like he's not quite mm-hmm. into the like uh, okay. I, I don't know, like I, I, it, But at the same time, thinking about it, I.
0: Uh, when you say when you say he wasn't, he's not into the the role. Do you mean like you you, you, you sense
1: that, that I feel like he couldn't quite get a grasp on the character?
0: Okay. Like, I, well, he he more... did have that problem with the film or with the book, remember? Yes. So maybe he was never fully happy with the screenplay.
1: A, exactly, and I think oh, that yeah. character, I think that showed his performance a little bit, where he kind of played himself a little bit as like mm-hmm. a spy assassin type, uh, oh, yeah. adventurer. He did. He did his best, I think, in the role. But I just think the story and the screenplay that hmm. happened just didn't convey that for him. But um,
0: okay, sorry. But it's, just... not,
1: but it's not his acting. It's more about just how he okay, fits in the story. Right.
0: So um, the story, right? Okay.
1: Yeah, but uh, there, there's pretty realistic action and storytelling. Uh, is is very prominent in this film, and I think that's mm-hmm. what makes it sticks out. But right. there's a tinge of camp as well, and this makes some of the bad stuff in the film even seem worse mm. because, like. It's not like yeah. you're trying to make a serious action movie, like in the con in the context or the the budget that you're using, mm-hmm. and having to also count out to a lot of Hollywood, you know, producer meddling, mm-hmm. so that it gets you know so that it can play across wide audiences. You know, but another contention though is, is Hemlock's lifestyle to be admired? Mm-hmm. Maybe he's showing him as an hothead in the end. Who does not realize? You know, by the time he's up on the mountain, he's there for nothing, right? Because by the end, he's still kind of a pawn of breaking. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I mean?
0: That's a good point. Yeah, I don't know if the film does try to do that. Uh, so you th- you're you wondering if there's like a morality edge to this.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah. Because makes... I kind of see aspects of the parody and then the more mm-hmm. straight-laced version that Eastwood was trying to create. And maybe they're just they're jarring just mm-hmm. for me a little bit, I guess.
0: Not compatible. I yeah yeah there is there is something though isn't there within the story that doesn't work there definitely is and i oh, mean yeah. apart from the obvious bits right the the off color uh the racism the, the the homophobia that stuff is obviously screaming yeah. out but the but apart from like
1: that ultra conservative alpha male with like misogyny it, yeah. racism yeah. and homophobia thrown in for good measure mm-hmm. you know like while well, these traits do appear in the bon ouvre, and mm-hmm. it definitely mm-hmm. feels like Iger sanction was a chance to launch a john hemlock spy movie franchise yeah uh, it, as i said it almost feels mean-spirited that's um,
0: a, yeah it's a good observation i hadn't put yeah, it in quite pretty, that way it, but you're right yeah it's a good point it's
2: kind of negative there, there's a lot of negativity in that whereas yeah. like bond pessimism kinda, like, yeah. plays around like a cat with like a ball of yarn kind of back and forth but the uh-huh. thing
1: is is like I, I think bond if you look in comparison bond is kind of like a beer or like a glass of wine where like mm. you drink in everything in it and like you don't notice the homophobia that might be in there mm. because of the time period or the misogyny or even the, and the racism you know like you don't quite notice it because you're drinking the full thing. Mm-hmm. But, I that, but I find that with Eastwood in command mm-hmm. and on the same kind of storyline and the same kind of style, it feels like you're, it's like a stiff drink right mm-hmm. away, where like you're given this raw.
0: Well, yeah. uh, at at the risk of at the risk of trying to define, because you can't do that, yes. you can't define <laughs> even celebrities that you think you know really well. I mean, how much of this this feeling to the story? Um, this hardness as you describe it the bluntness Jeff how much of that do you think is Eastwood and how much of it is just not, it, it Eastwood in answering to something like Bond or how much of it is him wanting to just do something yeah. different like
2: I mean that's very hard to that's very hard to say I would say it's probably a good portion of him but mm-hmm. again as I've never met the individual uh, just going from, you know, what I've seen and whatever. Because his
0: politics uh, are, are, are quite oppositional. His politics yeah. create an awful lot of... I mean, when he is vocal about them, they do yes. tend to upset, don't they?
1: Yes. Well, he's... he's Yeah, Clint is unsurprisingly conservative in that aspect. Um, but at the same time, one thing, the reason why I'm coming up with this possible idea of this kind of being intentional criticism of people like James Bond, for example, and yeah. maybe that's what he drew on from the parody that maybe he mm-hmm. didn't want to do a parody maybe he kind of wanted to do almost like a, a commentary on this type of lifestyle because mm. if you go back to look at unforgiven like yeah. that is a total deconstruction of the western mythos yeah and mm-hmm. it, it, and you could tell eastwood is in sympathy with those prostitutes mm-hmm. you know like in that yeah. town, you can tell that he's on their side yes. uh, he also criticizes their own use of violence to solve the situation as well so he's on he's kind of like on the both sides I think, mm-hmm. of that issue so i think that it's possible that could have been trying to somehow make some commentary in this film
0: fair yeah. point so what, what was your score for story
1: um well as i mentioned like i found that like I, I, this the whole sequence on the eiger was my favorite part of the movie i mm. love the dynamic between freitag uh yeah. between the austrian guy and from Montaigne. that whole dynamic was great and there was so much tension there rainer strone who played freitag yeah fascinating character i wanted he was so much pretty he was good yeah yeah i wouldn't even be happy if he was the villain like i, I just you know in, in that i know it's cliched but right. i would you know i think it would have been better if he was the villain i think it huh. could be like cat and mouse kind of thing on the mountain side but that wasn't the movie that we got off
2: mm-hmm. um no.
1: i found the middle section was kind of besides that great section in monument yeah. that point was that soul scene was pointless uh yeah. um, really need to have miles Mello other than to justify the hotheadedness, the revenge aspect of Hemlock's character.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. yeah, was
1: yeah, yeah. superfluous and he just didn't you didn't need to have it in there. Maybe that was from the book and they were trying to make the script work and that's the reason why. I don't know, but but it also could have been prisoner as well. No, so I,
0: I don't think I was that far away in my plot summary where I was saying that I think it satisfies the need in a Clint Eastwood film to give the audience a bit of what it expects, which is him rough yeah. and somebody, you know? Like yeah. I that's, think
1: there's part of that. Part of that. That's definitely true, but they're definitely also trying to get a bit, they're trying to be a bit titillating as well, you know, they're uh-huh. trying to, they're, they, they knew their audience for that movie, I guess is what I'm trying to say, like, yeah, um, this is a movie, you know, that uh, I, I think just in her reactions of the characters in it, like Pauline Kale said was a travesty, yeah. so, um, it, it, <laughs> Roger Ebert liked it though, but we always know yeah, Roger he did. Ebert yeah. likes the women in the movies, the, it, mm-hmm. that he, he's, he's, uh, he's always been very upfront about that, he likes sex, I mean, Roger Ebert yeah. always, has always been that way, a little bit chauvinist sometimes, but, I do like him as a movie reviewer, and I think mm. a lot of that chauvinism might simply just be, you know, a different time period, right? Oh, it's, but, a,
0: it's an every-man knee-jerk yeah. reaction that he's not afraid to write on paper, right?
1: So while I love the whole... I love While I love... There's so many parts of this movie that I think are very well, like, scripted, and how the scenes okay. uh, work together, and just the dynamics they create between characters. But there's also scenes like, you know, the portrayal of Miles Mello, mm. uh, some of the dialogue, like, comment made by Eastwood when he's with uh, Jemima that first time, like... I don't know where that came, from. like yeah. Like, uh, I, again, that's like the dark humor, right? And it's kind of funny because, like, this is the same dirty Harry, same, you know, Clint Eastwood is dirty Harry, yeah. Who was in in uh, sudden impact, it was all about you know, like uh, a person, a woman who was sexually mm. assaulted, and getting mm. revenge against her mm. victims, right? Mm. And it's
0: like a step uh, back. It's a step back. Yeah. Well,
1: kind of, yeah. But I'm wondering again, is this just Eastwood or the die or the screenplay mm. criticizing again that type of okay? Right. Well, so
0: that I mean, that's an interpretation, dude. That yeah. I mean, if if we're go, if we're wanting to go down that road, then the film deserves a lot more credit for putting this stuff in. bluntly
1: And but that's it's, why, like, ooh, while
0: I don't know. I can go there.
1: I think I'm going to have to just because of the complexity and the possible different layers mm-hmm. that are yet unexplored. I'm going to have mm-hmm. to go with six and a half out of ten. Okay. It's actually a little higher than I thought I would end up with it because <clears> I was waiting so long to get to the Iger sanction, and I found so much of the middle part kind of really mm-hmm. just dragged uh, yeah. but it was never boring so I'll give it bad mm-hmm. for sure but right. I'm going to give go with six and a half out of ten for the story
0: okay right cool uh, I'll go I suppose I'll, I'll share my thoughts I agree with much of what you say I went six out of ten overall for the story of the Iger sanction even though I would I would like to award certain parts of it much higher mark than that uh, overall yes. six out of ten. Um, one of the things that I like about this story and I think Uh, One of the reasons why it pulls me in is because it does what not all of the Bond movies do, as we've discussed at great length on the program. Which is it lingers. The settings that I'm giving, mm-hmm. I'm given settings that I get to spend some time in. I get to walk and stretch my legs in these places. And I feel because yeah. of that, that I am there. Like I disagree with your point about the midsection dragging or you're just not finding the content as engaging and you're wanting to get to the Eiger. I too want to get to the Eiger to get to that part. And I know it's coming, but I am soaking up the Monument Valley sequences because I think they're so beautifully shot and rendered and I'm watching this stuff and I'm like I'm really happy no, no, those sequ- to be sequences As I
1: said the climbing sequence is fantastic like I love that whole part mm. in Monument Valley I love that, that that part of him and George Kennedy I really like that right. but there's just some of the stuff that occurred at his you know at his club med as you said right. it just seems just some per- superfluous yeah, to me, yeah. and it, took me okay. out, it took me out of the movie mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's just how I feel.
0: No 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 I, I get you with that I do I mean th- I still find that the spectacle of the, the strangeness of that environment uh, um, interesting to watch. It's, but, oh, yeah. it's,
1: it's jarring, yeah, and it's it just reminded weird. me of like diamonds are yeah. forever a little bit.
0: You know, I, if we take this back to, to Bond, right, for a moment, and I know this is kind of silly, but it, it is sort of how I feel with this. Like watching Clint Eastwood's performance here, as written, right, story. It, it's kind of like, it's kind of like. Okay, you remember in the, the the pyramids in the Spy who loved me, right? Um, where we've got that voice like bah, 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 the pyramids or whatever yeah, it says that, right yeah, and then you've yeah. got and then you've got that scene in diamonds the circus circus scene where she, where, where there's like introducing the the woman who turns into a gorilla and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. i feel like watching this Movie and and accepting this story, it's kind of like introducing Man, 1975, in a museum or something. Like you've got, (laughs) like I I do mean that. Like this is Man, and it is good, right? Like watch him, watch him become a hero by not sleeping with a young woman, but but we're we're still treating women like shit. You see his dignity, like respect respect his dignity. And I mean, yes, he's critical of gay men and black women too, but this was Man, 1975. (laughs) I just. I I, I can't get over that. Like the film screams its cultural biases and its bigotry and so much that I can't do, Jeff, what you so admirably do, um, which, and I'm not suggesting for a second you're doing it here blindly, but I, I can't, fully transport myself back to the time of production because i'm uncomfortable in some of this stuff like it, uh, this one i couldn't do you
2: know do what it. i mean like yeah, i'll be it, like, honest cool. this one I, I i yeah i couldn't do it this is one you know, of the examples know,
1: where i couldn't do it guys we we've talked to say clinics would look pretty cool in tweed i think jeff he did he looked great he him. did yeah he, he always yeah. he, he, he looks you know great he reminded and... me of a little bit and I, I, I he actually i can see it more and more now like mm-hmm. if he ever did like a dirty harry revamp um maybe if he was a couple of years younger Hugh Jackman could totally yeah of course Harry. I agree so, I agree with I that. I find yes. Clint Eastwood and, and I find even just as Wolverine like mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood and yeah. and nice. uh, Hugh Jackman I don't yeah. know they just had that same kind of style to them.
0: Yeah I agree with you man I think so. Uh I do I totally see that and, and you know one of Although the one Hugh of the has things a musical background. that that connects the two of them is posture you know Clint Eastwood's posture in this film when he's walking you know like he's he's tall. Yes, yeah. but he's yeah. also carrying himself properly with his shoulders yes. thrown back and yeah. his head and his chin up. Like, he carries himself confidently, and that and that yeah. really stands out to me, but that's kind of more performance stuff. Anyway, getting back to this sort of um, cultural, you know, biases and all of that stuff of, of the time, like... As much as I love the story uh, of this retired assassin being blackmailed into a killing that ultimately isn't isn't even important and the whole environment of like the microfilm the training the climb the resolution yeah. I just I just can't ignore the stuff that is really off-putting and I get yes. that it's Clint and I get that it's the 1970s but this norm I do find jarring and I'm not yes. I'm, i'm not trying to say you know for a minute that i always get it right or that i live a fully principled life or anything like that but the screenplay is really just offensive in some places yeah and and that is just difficult to accept like the action the plot it does hold up really well sure but the caricature of miles of miles Mello and the inherent racism with george and jemima and you know just because just because she's a a black actor saying the lines doesn't mean that it isn't racist, right? Like yeah. yes. the, the bigotry, the male gaze, like the, these are the things that keep the film, which is filmed so beautifully from being timeless. And Hitchco- yeah. Hitchcock's films are layered with male bigotry and, and, and gaze too. We we get that, right? And corruptible yeah. power and, and sex and all of that. But he's woven that stuff into the yeah. stories that exactly. allows the, the, the stories to become timeless. Whether he was crippled with these the, these problems or not himself, his films are accepted because of the way those narratives are woven. Whereas here, it's just, as you said, Jeff, so blunt, blunt. it's so blunt that it feels kind of wasted. And that's, ultimately I think what keeps a film like The Iger Sanction from being timeless and more well respected
1: it's not diluted I guess you could say and that's not to
0: say that diluting yeah but Josh that's not to say that diluting it is the right thing to do either I mean you know Mm. but uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a lot I like about Clint Eastwood uh, in here and Vanetta McGee particularly I think they work nicely as a little couple but there's Elsewhere, a lot of problems in the script, and too many for me to be overly charitable. Like I'm, I'm going six, to, six out of ten. Some parts are deserving of a ten, um, and I do like the way the film lingers its story in different places, so so I can hang out there, and I feel like I'm in. Uh, immersed in there but then i find myself wanting out like i don't want to be immersed in in club med when when george is running around topless because she's native american and she doesn't need a voice like that stuff is not comfortable
1: no definitely Um, not not funny
0: i kind of think more and more
1: yeah uh, not that you convinced me it's more about me just kind of like looking back at things in perspective i think i'm going to stay at a six out of ten that was my that was my initial mark Okay. I wanted to give it more than that because just because I like I, because of the aspects of the story that I liked, but I think overall, like, um, you got to yeah. see how like this was. There was some, I think, a mm-hmm. flawed attitude, you know, about about life in general. Like, uh, in, mm-hmm. in this portrayal of the film, there wasn't really any kind of like censorship in terms of not that there should be mm-hmm. censorship, but some sort of like filter, you know, that they could have used to make this mm-hmm. more palatable. And yeah. didn't even bother yeah. with it, and yeah. I don't think that the, the, the script was able to, if they were trying to. Convey these complexities and show maybe a criticism of it. I yeah. think it's very, very, it's a nuance that you really have to pick up, I think. Yes, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think six to a 10 serves the story. In it does. Of, uh, it my does. money goes
0: and you've, you've got to be careful too don't we like I'm just thinking as we're having this chat like one of the troubles now in reviewing a film like this and like the Bond films too because you know we've we've had the Patricia Fearing scene in Thunderball you know we've had the Pussy yeah. Galore stuff in Goldfinger and one of the problems with, with trying to review these films today coming at them as we should and, and can is that you, you can't score racism you can't say well that's racist I'll take two barks <laughs> off like so how many yes. racism how, how many racist things make three points like it, it, it's it, the arbitrariness of this is very clear and kind of, you know, it, it's there. But I guess six out of, like, the, the film could have done, and, and if it were to be remade, would do things much better than this. Um, and I get that it was 1975, but you can't escape some of this. So 6 out of 10, I think I agree with you, Josh. It's a, it's a fair point on the story. Jeff, what did mm-hmm. you go
2: for, buddy? I actually went for a 6. Uh, cool. And, and again, for the majority of what you guys are talking about, um, I enjoyed it. And again, I liked how the the story began, especially with the score. I was like, okay, yeah, you know, like I, I think I had said this to Josh at the beginning, made me feel like it was like a Checkpoint Charlie kind of thing. Like, you know, Yeah. and I, I, I had joked with you. I was like, you know, I knew that it was supposed to be in Switzerland, but I was like, what's with all these Austrian flags? Yeah. But it was all the, the, the do not enter, yeah, like enter. going the wrong way mm. signs on mm. the street. I was mm. like, what? I was, but, uh, uh, and so, uh, you know, and again, I think part of it was, like, I was expecting a little more espionage, but then mm-hmm. obviously, like, the way you were describing it is that it, it was more about sort of, like, the climbing and, and that aspect. Uh, but the story, and again, like we were saying, I, I had no problem with the beginning, um, like, the first act. And again, the second act, I didn't like, and part, part, partly because I was like, so why would they train in a locale and an environment that is completely different than where they're going. Like, I understand, like, look, climbing is climbing. However, yeah. some climbing is you're, not climbing. You're, you're, you're in a very, very, very hot yeah. mm-hmm. uh, environment. And, you know, uh, rocks are, are rocks, but it's a different type. And, and so I would feel like, wouldn't you want to go at altitude so your, bo- yeah. your, your body could
0: adjust? Clint doesn't need uh, to do that.
2: Apparently not. And nah, apparently, Clint, Clint just uh, shows best, up, man. The best way to, to get your uh, stamina up is to run in tight-ass blue jeans
0: and a <laughs> denim shirt. After who after women who have? take their blouses off.
2: Yeah, but I'm like, who who trains in tight blue jeans, cowboy boots, and a denim shirt? Clint, like,
0: come on, man. What? Yeah,
1: like, yeah. I mean, you know. let's get. To, I mean, also yeah. consider too. There's a woman whose sole name is Buns in the movie. I yes, over. Oh, yeah. yeah. oh, oh, yeah. yeah. uh-huh. Can't analyze too much. In, so part, no, no, no. Too.
2: I know, I know. But and again, so the, you know, the second act. I just that's the thing is I I couldn't get behind it because I didn't. I just didn't like why they went to Arizona to train for the, you know, the Iger mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. in the Alps that I mm-hmm. couldn't understand.
0: So you and Josh uh, are the same on that point.
1: And two. I, no, just, I understand why they're trained in, in 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 Arizona. I understand that. I just don't understand the whole Club Med aspect of things. And well, the just, Club, yeah. yeah. Well, he yeah, did I, he
0: did I, kind I, of explain as they drove in. Oh, it's all changed since I opened it. Blah. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's all it's all visitors uh, and tourists now. Yeah. Okay. Fair. No, that's um, not fair. I don't think that is fair. I think I, just, I think uh, that's I, just cheap and easy. One, I
2: did, I, I so one, I couldn't get behind that. And then, as you know, this this part kept going. I just liked it less and less because. The only thing that I really enjoyed out of the second act was the majority of George Kennedy because I liked him as a character. He was fun. Mm-hmm. He was kind of refreshing, mm-hmm. kind of like a simple character, you know, with, a, with that Massachusetts accent. I think it's a Massachusetts accent because he usually plays a character like that. Um, and I, I just sort of appreciated like how, how excited he was. To see him. Like, he was like, God damn, we're going to drink a lot of beer, or whatever he said. Like, I just thought that, that was funny. Yeah, like, yeah, he yeah. picked him up and he was genuinely He was happy
0: really to see excited, him. wasn't he? Like, he was to I, see I his buddy. I
2: pictured Homer, like, you know, when Rachel opens the door when she's done her shift and he's all <laughs> over. That's what yeah. I was, you know. Yeah. But anyway, so, but the whole point of the Club Med part, I didn't like. I just didn't like it. And and the overtly, you know, uh, homophobic and, 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 and racist stuff going on there. And I just. Okay, again like you know i say i can usually put myself in in you know the time frame I, I honestly felt very uncomfortable and i i i didn't feel like it really advanced the story though i understand it's 1975 and this is the kind of character he was but mellow like josh had mentioned to me we were saying he was like a really kind of an an awkward and nasty Liberace character who I just mm-hmm. don't believe was a green beret. Like obviously mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he could have been, but I just, I just didn't like, I just didn't,
1: uh, I don't know. I just not Maybe like, his maybe, background I, was that, you know, he was a homosexual and in the army, he couldn't and show the that. Army, and, well, and, and maybe people uh, suspected uh, of and, him and treated him differently for it. And that's why he betrayed and, them was well, because I mean, of, of their, of their bigotism towards I him. Ha, I had, I had thought of, I had thought of that too. Hot and, take. And,
2: <laughs> no 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 and and I I that's why like I I was about to say like it's not necessarily like I don't necessarily don't believe it mm-hmm. I just uh I I just like it it, it left a bad taste on my mouth and I just yeah. and it was just the unbelievable stuff where this guy could literally like just say hey you you know buns can you just take a like take my dog you know mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
2: that word be careful he uh, doesn't yeah. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> See, be careful he doesn't argue. I'm like, are you serious? Like, yeah. you really? Like, you just go randomly find a random chick who's dressed in the American flag on a poolside beach in Arizona and just say, here, take my little pervy dog for a walk. Like, does she even work there? I thought she was literally just like one of the people just like chilling. Yeah. I don't know. And then, like, <laughs> just goes and, and starts a fight. No one cares. <laughs> yeah. uh, and just like, <laughs> I it just well, George
1: well George Kennedy's
2: well, own owned
0: the place so yeah yeah, yeah. but so still he, yeah I don't know it's just like I just felt the whole um second the, the worst of the film is here isn't it like the worst oh, of the film's representation is right here yeah. Yes,
2: yeah and and uh, uh yeah I just I was having a really hard time and that's that's pretty much I think we can all agree like mm-hmm. with our scoring for story it's definitely the second act that that drops our scores mm-hmm. because the first act and the third act are are excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just like, and I obviously you know there's things that that are cleared up because of who Mellow is and that interaction with the Hemlock and and you know the score needing to be settled and a little bit of background and all that kind of stuff, and obviously the killing of Dwayne and, and Mello and 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 showing that, but. Uh, it, it's it's that part of the story that really uh, it, it is uh, to me. It yeah, I I really didn't like it, and that's one of the reasons why I I scored it lower. Now, obviously, uh, six is not the worst scoring we could give to story, but because I did appreciate the rest of it, though I did kind of feel when they were describing to Hemlock at at the Iger, it was kind of just like very quick, like oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I was like, okay, they're just trying to wrap this up. Mm-hmm. So I, I I, didn't really think the story was very strong in the film. Um, so I wasn't, like, super, super impressed with the story, though I did appreciate it for what it was. Again, also, I'm going to be honest with you, I was expecting more of, like, uh, a Cold War kind of spy espionage film and less about the, the – I thought it was going to be, like, more like – it took place during climbing, where it was almost mostly about climbing, which is fine. Yeah, that's
0: true. But how
2: you had described it, uh, and and the reasons. For why in the filming and all this kind of stuff, it makes sense now. Mm -hmm. However, I I was just like, oh, really? Okay.
0: (laughs) Okay. So this is just just book climbing. All right. (laughs) Yeah. But that's anyways. That's my that's you know that's my two cents. Guys, let me ask you this before we move off story, and this open to anybody. Um, we're we're hitting the film pretty heavily for its representations, as I think we should. But how many positive? portrayals of gay men or women were in the cinema at this point uh i mean how many interracial relationships were featured uh at this point in cinema i know that we had i
1: I think the interracial relationship between him and um that was pretty good uh, well despite her name Mm -hmm. uh which, like, and, and the whole Uncle Ben comment, it's like they're kind of, that seems like <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. a parody. I, I have no yes, idea. Yes, I but, think
0: so. But she she gives as good as she gets, doesn't she?
1: She does, yeah. Like, I believe in their relationship and I, I never think, I never got the opinion that he was a racist or anything along those lines. So I think they did that part well. Um, but it's a portrayal for like Mello and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like even that Liberace kind of uh, persona, I think, pervaded, I think, a lot of uh, 60s and 70s mm-hmm. film at that time. So... We can't say, you know, this was the only one event for this. Yeah. Well, oh, no, no. Absolutely. Like, not. So it was just no. kind of like it was just uh, one of those things where just people like expected characters like this. And right. I,
0: yeah. I think
1: like they try to make some, a little more com- a little more complexity. Hmm. I don't know. M- perhaps maybe like Peter O'Toole and Lawrence of Arabia or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, and it would be a little bit different, you know, if there was some background to him or something.
0: And that's that's not what this film wants to do. That's well, not what that's the what, studio yeah. wants to and, do. Yeah, because that's the thing that. is,
2: I was I would have really liked more background on almost all the characters because I was like, wow, there's that photo that they they made a point of showing of, of uh, you know Hemlock and, and Bach and all these guys and they're clearly Green Berets. I'm like, I'd like to know a little more about that. Mm-hmm, I want to mm-hmm. know a little more about C two. I want to know a little more about um, yeah the world you know, building. Just, yeah, you could do some else. I want to know like why why is he so into art. And why, you know, and, and how did he get to be, or like, why is he retired? Why is he, you know, and, I, anyway, obviously you couldn't like, the movie's already two hours. That would have to have been like a yes. six hour movie, mm-hmm. but that's, I, I was just wanting a little more, I just like the background. I want to know why, why is this guy who was like, you know, mid to late forties, why is he an art teacher now? He was Green Beret, like what, and he was a spy and all this kind of stuff. So I just, mm-hmm. I just like, he, these are the kind of things you like to know about, a bit of background for. Mm-hmm. But, yes, it's Absolutely.
0: Mm. Sorry. I, yeah. No, I am with you. I just I had to ask a question because you know, it it, it we're we're given the film Pelters for these these features but like you were saying, like we've all said, 45 years old, are we expecting too much and in the evolution of gender representation and in the evolution of film and filmmaking, is it right to to you know throw throw bricks through the windows here of this picture? Um I think I think so because there are there are ways, even then, within that world and time, to improve what what we've got here in well, terms of characterization I, and yeah, stuff. I'm, so
2: I'm I'm just saying this, but I'm not like I'm not really sure. I don't have any. I'll be honest. I don't really have any research to 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 back this up. But I was gonna say there might be better representation of you know uh, same-sex couples and that kind of stuff back then. But they may have been like um, not low budget, but like indie films or or, or very sort of like, uh, what's the what's the proper term for back then where it would have been like a, a, a small release or, or like an independent or like a, an independent film, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, of, of niche sort of like niche films that they would have been trying to portray that kind of stuff mm-hmm. in, 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 a, in a better light. So I would say mainstream films, you're probably trying to show like how everyone feels, or not everyone, but the majority of people feel, right? So and at that time, that's how sort of like you know macho ness and and all that kind of stuff for the big, big actors and big movies like that. That's how everyone thinks you're supposed to portray yeah. yourselves. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas you might have, obviously society better and wasn't more there yet. exactly. Society it's wasn't all there about society, yet. right? Exactly. So then the the probably the more realistic, I would say probably better realistic portrayals of of that regarding race and and, and um sim, and you know um. Mm gender orientation that kind of stuff would have probably been in, in art art house, uh, mm-hmm. art house yeah. films or or independent films maybe or, mm-hmm.
1: or like in uh, or like in campy kind of queer cinema C- exactly like that, exactly, that, that's, exactly. What, that's what exactly. like rocky horror picture show exactly like yeah. exactly that's what they tackle those kind of that's same what they year at, stereotypes.
2: by the way that was the same year and only about mm-hmm. a month after this was released nice <laughs> one. Ah, very very good, good. okay yeah miles bellow has in the rocky the horror picture show pretty
1: well <laughs> i good yeah. especially with charles gray as well Let's um, uh let's move on so to acting.
0: Yeah. I will I'll go first here because it's really quick what I got to say. I think the yep. acting in this movie this my opinion boys I think the acting in this film is solid. I don't think anybody phones in there for performances. George no. Kennedy in particular, I, I thought was Eastwood, great yes. in this movie. Uh, I didn't like what he was always saying, and I don't like what Eastwood is always uh, saying. I just I just no. don't. But that's not the acting, that's no, the story. No. Exactly. And, and
1: that's the time period.
0: And I'm not going to criticize the, the, the actors no. for doing these things necessarily. Yeah. East, Eastwood gives, in this movie, a lot of what you expect and hire him for anyway. He he yes. is himself in different clothes. I mean, he, he yeah. he's a different occupation, but he, there's not a lot arranged to Clint Eastwood, and that's not His me, is that's not me criticizing him himself. No, that's right yeah but there is is there? he, he doesn't he do a lot he
1: sells an image he sells, a, he yeah. sells an image that's this is not the not same character
0: difference. it's the same character he played in Gran Torino yeah. It's the same character he plays in, uh, you know, in the Line of Fire or whatever it is. Like where he just does the same role everywhere dirty, he goes. Hairy,
1: dirty Harry. Yeah, yeah, it is the yeah.
0: same thing. He's not—he's not versatile terribly. I don't not think. Really, not. I love Clint Eastwood. I like—I like, I like yeah. his 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 magnetism on the screen, but sure. I'm not gonna say that he's he's a fantastic actor. I think Unforgiven is probably his best performance because yes. there is that nuance there that you like uh, to see in a it, character, right?
2: I also think it works with the age he was at the time. Yes, because it point, wouldn't yeah. have worked. That definitely wouldn't have worked mm-hmm. if he was forty five.
0: Yeah. But here he's at an all. action star and he does it well. He's confident, he holds the screen nicely. But Kennedy's performance is nuanced, I find. Yep. It's yeah, it's, it's, it's even compassionate. Like Jeff, you mentioned the highs of him picking his buddy up in the G- and getting excited like a dog. Yeah. And then there's that sort of so, kind of tail between my legs talk at the end, right? Where he's yeah. trying to confess what he's he, done. And yeah. I mean, he though, he's a raging pervert in some scenes here. And you he can't get away from that. But the acting of his character is, is good. And I, I thought yes. that uh, I thought that the climbers all did their own parts really well. I, yeah. I liked that. Again, you
1: have to consider, yeah. he is uh, George Kennedy. like He is in the same business that uh, Hemlock was in you mm-hmm. gotta understand right, this yeah. is not a uh, this is an, an immoral man maybe immoral, not a people man yeah. but mm-hmm. an immoral man who's so it's not surprising you know that there's a darkness in him despite you know when he sees his friend and stuff that brings out his humanity so mm-hmm. i think you got to mm-hmm. put that into his performance as well yeah and i think that makes it more you know much more solid and you can kind of in many ways too of how he played the role i would totally have been surprised if he was the villain the entire mm-hmm. time yes and and yeah. and and or something like that and i thought honestly that was going to be the showdown when he comes down from the mountain and i thought there would be a big face off between them but instead they have almost like anticlimactic ending
0: yeah yeah it is kind of anticlimactic uh but i I like that complexity i like the complexity
1: anyway i i went eight
0: overall and and that might be a little bit generous because some of the minor roles aren't really stand out but i think the ones that we, we, we want to see do their thing do it well in terms of performance the chemistry between kennedy and uh, clint eastwood i think is really good and exactly. I, I i also was impressed not knowing much of her work i was impressed with uh, vanetta mcgee i thought she was yeah, pretty i
1: thought she was good she, in this little role she was good she kind of had yeah. like a, a, she kind of reminded me of like um I, what i liked about her role too was like in the 70s you have an association when you see Black women on screen with a lot of right. black exploitation films uh-huh. and she she played in black exploitation films like Shaft in Africa for example right but uh, at the same time like i bu- i bought her as like the movie i was trying mm. to sell her as just another girl not just a black woman. and i really liked that aspect they never played up like the whole you know chocolate and all this kind of like mm-hmm. you know soul sister kind of thing you know what i mean like they never yeah, gave her an yeah. afro they never stereotyped her they never made any comment on the on the on the biracial aspect of their relationship and i thought yeah. that was really progressive for the movie too. No, Yeah, you're,
2: that Ka- that is a good point kind
1: yeah, of but but she, she she
0: it is still she's still licking out the the aunt jemima jokes that the audience yeah. think will be funny at the time so i mean yeah. I, I i'm beating that you halfway
1: i'm, that, you halfway, that, that I'm meeting you halfway
0: buddy i'm meeting you halfway
1: but in a way, it was almost them trying to, like, almost, like, acknowledge, I guess, the fact mm-hmm. that, like, I guess that was for the older audiences going to go, yeah, like, we're showing a biracial relationship here. But it's very yeah. clearly, though, that the old slavery uh, <sighs> well, are still well and well alive. And mm-hmm. and so it kind of, in a way, uh, it's not her fault in the performance at all. No, she was-
0: no, <laughs> no, no, she was. So that's me yeah. on eight. That's me on eight. Yeah,
1: I, yeah. I was seven. I was seven eight. out of ten. Um, right. Eastwood's Hemlock was Dirty Harry as a spy. He looks cool. He has a badass attitude. But I mm-hmm. feel like Swift quite, you know, he can't deliver what he wants to bring to the role. No. So I think he just ended up, I think maybe because he just got had to get used to directing himself. Or maybe, <laughs> as you said, maybe he's just kind of like, that's his style. That's what, that's, he didn't have a lot of range. Uh, yeah, I just, maybe uh, maybe yeah. The, I did find, despite his role, Jack Cassidy was fun and over the top as mm-hmm. Miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, he was good in the role. I just, yeah, he was good. George Kennedy, just... as I said, solid. For <laughs> sure. Um, I really liked again Rainer Schoen, I actually liked all of the climbers. They they were all very They beautiful. were,
0: they were all good. They all looked like climbers. They all, yeah, you know, they, they were, were really, all realistic.
1: Yeah, and and particularly like uh Schoner as Guy, uh, he was mm-hmm. he was great. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you wanted to see him, you wanted to see him fall, you know. And they kind of almost show his death off screen. You you see the Austrian guy die, but you don't you don't even get the feel like Freitag's death at all, well, you know? You see him plummet. Yeah. But even it's... then, you can kind of tell that he himself was sociopathic because he has like no reaction at all to uh-huh. uh, Montaigne's death whatsoever. You know, like. No, like, he just know, sees that he, the door you know,
0: opens for his wife. That's all. He,
1: he was a cold son of a bitch he, anyway, so he wasn't a really a good guy, even despite the fact he wasn't the guy that uh, Hemlock mm-hmm. was back. So, yeah, all of them seem compelling and interesting uh, than the cliché spy characters of the film. Yeah. Uh, they were naturalistic in their performances, and you could feel the chemistry between them as well as attention. Mm-hmm. Again, I think this is the best executed part of the movie. And then, of course, you have other characters too, like Dragan, uh, who I thought was mm-hmm. Charles Gray for in, a moment. He was, but
0: yeah, like, he was interesting too. though. He was interesting. Yeah, he's like a he comic does, book he character. Look, that guy. does look like Charles yeah. Gray. Yeah,
1: yeah, but he was like a, he was a comic book character to me, and and to me, I think yeah. him being the head of this C two or whatever, uh, totally took away like the the whole spy movie thing. Where okay. you can't say this guy's CIA. You can't say he's wh- mm-hmm. whatever. He's C two. And, like, mm-hmm. is that, like, the equivalent of, like, control and, and get smart? Like, what is the Yeah, exactly? yeah. yeah you you're a good point. I mean? yeah, that's a, that's is a good, it a parking yeah. space? And, you know, where I lost my <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> where I can't find my car, like, in that Seinfeld episode? Yeah. And, you know, that's a good I, point. That's yeah. where
2: he got the idea. That was his first meet as a spy. Yeah. That's right where he there. came up. And he it. like I'm gonna call my organization C2, C2 so I yeah. never forget where my car is <laughs>
0: That's true, but then just you're right. That's 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 got to be the parody side of things that he that, yeah. that's but well, that's what lived on into the script for sure. That didn't get bled out, or,
1: or they didn't want to show like you know in the 70s, I guess like uh, especially during the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. they didn't want to show like I guess the American government. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, no, why wouldn't they? I mean, this is the this is the time period of all the president's men, and
2: this is, they so, just got out of this is a, yeah. just as so, Saigon you know, they fell. Would right now,
1: be critical about it, and just embrace it. But I guess they're following the novel, so yeah. Whatever. yeah. yeah. So, Jeff, sure. what
0: about you for acting? What do you think of it? Josh said uh, seven. Ha- I'm at an eight.
1: Yeah, uh
2: seven and a half, eight for me. Okay. Uh, like I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed all the. I thought everyone did a uh, a very good job in the characters. Again. With you know the the portrayal of the racism and there and the homosexuality, like I understand like they're just they're playing the roles they are given. I liked, I really did like uh, it's Vanetta, right? Yeah. That's yeah. her name. I, I liked her. I thought it was kind of funny that she was like, and I guess they kind of were like, well, it's not it's not bad if we let her make fun of, like, you know, her name saying, like, my mom wanted to be, you know, mm-hmm. ethnic. And, like, mm-hmm. it's okay if she says it because she's mm-hmm. black, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> But isn't but that um, just, like, isn't that just a producer or a more powerful person's way of getting their joke in there anyway? Yeah,
2: it yeah, is. Exactly. It is. But they're like, it's okay because
0: she's Yeah, because like, she's saying it. It's, right? Yeah, it's a lot of good faith, isn't it? That's what I think. Creepy but, twist manipulative good faith yeah
1: it's almost like it's it's almost like they're saying you know like uh, okay we have a biracial couple here so we're progressive but at the same time we're we're also but we're also going back down to earth in in that in that context because we're still kind of getting our jokes in there anyway so we're reinforcing the trope anyways exactly
2: Uh, yeah i mean the thing is it's like and i i appreciated that um hemlock and, and brown were like on the same level like they you know they were sort of at, at even, it wasn't just like, I'm the man, you're the woman, listen to me. Like, they were kind of, it was pretty good. I, I appreciated that they were at least kind of on the same level, which, um again, the I, I love George uh, Kennedy. I'm always, I've, I'm always a big fan of him. His character was, he was kind of gross. Yeah. Uh, but I, yeah. I appreciated how he played it. And one part that I really enjoyed is when Eastwood realized that he's limping Mm-hmm. And he said it to him twice. He repeated. It. He's like, "You're limping," and then you could see like he knew. Mm-hmm. He knew like yeah. He's on to I, me. I'm I'm your target. Mm-hmm. But then, but what I appreciated is that you could see the humility. And this is where the um, Ben was or Bowman was like, "Look, mm-hmm. man, like I know that you're you're I'm the target, but like I'm I'm literally th- literally throwing you an olive branch. That's right here, yeah. like." Yeah. I want to save your life. Like I know, you know, and I, and I'm, and if you, if you take the rope and I save your life, I'll explain to you everything. (laughs) So I I did appreciate that was one of my favorite parts. Actually, is his character Mm -hmm. as much as his character was just kind of like a trope, like a fun character to sort of, uh,
0: just sort of, uh, it's like a buddy, a buddy, isn't it?
1: Yeah. It was a buddy. Basically he plays buddies a lot. Yeah. The, the acting kind of like, it kind of like it's, uh, it, uh, what's the word, it overrides those or it drowns out those stereotypes and exactly. uh, is... portrays a more multidimensional human mm-hmm. being, you know, and that's what—that's the beauty of acting in terms of just like the slight the, roles that they're given.
2: Well, the other thing is that because they're buddy-buddy and they talk, they kind of, you know, have like, I think Donald Trump calls it shop-talk Mm-hmm. and they so they're just kind of back and forth like you kind know, of kidding around and kind of stuff like that so it doesn't come off as creepy which it does especially when you realize that george is his daughter
0: mm-hmm. yes and yeah he, and even, then you get all those complications like, well, and then you
2: have all the thing where he's like well you know i i worked with Mello because you got my daughter on drugs and then you're even saying like well and then why he, him he, why mellow like how like, the fuck why? did he get well, in maybe yeah. Mello go to him?
1: actually. Maybe because it didn't say that that Melo was a dope dealer. It was there, wasn't there? Wasn't there? Yeah, but
2: but Scott made a good point though. It's like, why would you even let your daughter close to those type of drugs? Yeah, yeah. It's it's like, why would you let her? Like, are you kidding me? Like, okay. So this this guy helped
0: my daughter once, and now he's a super big druggie, and he does like dealings and stuff. So let's just keep him hanging around Club Med until. The yeah. inevitable happens when he takes advantage of her or gives her something. Like It doesn't make any sense to me, no, and it's not it explained. Doesn't. It, it doesn't matter yeah, because, but, because no, plot. But here, but the yeah, thing, no, it's though, fine. is
1: because Mello was supposedly the courier or something involved with the death of uh, Bach, so that yeah. automatically makes the connection between, uh, story-wise anyways, between um, uh, Bowman and Bach. And, and box murder if you mm-hmm. think about it right because yeah exactly they're all Melopear, so it's, all, so it's yeah. all connected right so <laughs> I, I i i get that connection like i understand why no, they, no that and that But I it's just wasn't true as, as well as should have been
2: i did, like as much as like jack cassidy's character really made my skin crawl i, I he he played it well mm-hmm. and so i i appreciated like how he played the character uh it was creepy um and you know but, but whatever i i i I appreciated how he played the character so that's why like i am giving acting a fairly high mark of eight because i thought Mm -hmm. and and again the uh, sorry the the the, i'm I'm forgetting the climbers um they all were very uh good in their roles they were they were smaller and there was uh the 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 younger guy who's who was like the decent guy i i was he's like um the Aryan John Denver, that's what I, the way I thought of nice. him. <laughs> you know, like, I don't mean Aryan as, I just mean like, oh. <laughs> you know, yeah, the Bolton Austrian guy. Yeah. 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 yeah, I was thinking like, you know, the Austrian John Denver, that's why I looked at him.
1: Those, he yeah, you, got, you basically uh, have the arrogant Germans. Rocky and, uh, Mountain uh, High, you know, yeah. and he
2: had a pretty big low, let's be honest. Um,
1: yeah. <laughs> I don't
0: know that actor. Do you guys know anything about him? Michael Grimm. Do you know anything no. else he's been in? No. No. Hey, but,
2: uh, anyways, for acting again, the acting was solid in this film, uh, in the, so we can't. That's why acting, I think, we we kind of had all agreed more or less on a, mm-hmm. on a decent number because the parts we didn't like about the characters, it wasn't about the acting; it was about yeah. how they were written. The mm-hmm. Story, right? Yeah, so,
0: yeah.
1: anyways, all right, uh, Josh, uh, atmosphere, atmosphere. I gave atmosphere eight out of ten. Okay, uh, maybe eight and a half. Uh, it's kind of in there. Uh, yeah, scoring, editing, cinematography, and style okay. of the film was fantastic. Uh, Eastwood utilized interesting camera angles, overhead shots, and points of view that help illustrate that he is a piece in a great game. The wide-open, natural mm-hmm. spaces of mm-hmm. mountains in the United States and Switzerland emphasize his powerlessness in the whole thing. Uh, yeah. good point. William's score is understated by pro- but propels the movie along. It's not a mo- too emotional and grandiose, and that lends to the callous feel of the whole film. Mm-hmm. Everything is tense and deadly in this film. There's a sense of vertigo and anxiety. And while there's pretty things to look at, it's a dangerous world. Mm-hmm. And no one is 100% good in this world. Mm-hmm. The only I think that just carries with the whole style of, of the film, in, in my opinion, on, on both aesthetically and in tone as well.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah hey man look i i went for a nine with my atmosphere and i know that that's really high but i think i think that i think that this is a film that i love watching for the camera work for the shots yeah. the yeah, you know sure. the, the helicopter the aerial work i love the climbing scenes yes. i love the music yeah. i like the lingering as i said i can't tell yes. you how much i like lingering the film even even its complexities of story and character and its problems the the lingering it makes it a very easy film to watch because you're here for a while, you're there for a while, and each three acts, as Jeff's saying, are, are very clearly distinct because yes. we're allowed to yeah. hang yeah. out for a bit in these places, and yes. that makes that makes the deal uh, much sweeter for me when it comes to watching. This is what I didn't get with Mission Impossible, but which I think yeah. would have helped it, you know, flying yeah. through. And Ronan worked this way too because we get to be in the environments a little mm. bit more, and I like I like this a lot, and obviously, the the period features make it challenging um but i see those more as story yeah than I do atmosphere yeah, the atmosphere the to me atmosphere. is the style and the technique of the film and, and all of those sort of post-production elements and stuff I think that this is a film I would definitely recommend people watch for those sorts of experiences mm. uh, you will not love the story I don't think people no. will come away from this thinking oh that's great unless you're a real bigoted white man <laughs> the, the atmosphere for me is, is excellent this is as good as I think it's as good as the best Bond films from this era for sure absolutely yeah
1: yeah I mean, so, nine what is, about you guys? Eight, I'm eight. I'm still sticking with. I think eight is uh, fair yeah. for the movie, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I, I can't. But there's just something about it, just a little bit, that makes you want to go down to an eight. Maybe it's just the overall of the film, mm-hmm. and maybe that's the reason why I want to just I want to drop it one grade lower than that. I guess. That's, yep. how, that, that's how I felt at the moment when I made the review anyways.
0: Fair point. And I could be gushing here with my nine just because it's, it's a fun kind of transportative film for me. It has to do yes. with the Eiger. It has to do with climbing. It has to do with John Williams score. It has to do with Clint Eastwood. I love all these things. Yes. So yeah, it's probably part of that going into it, but that's okay. I'm, I'm going to stick okay. with it. Uh, Jeff, point, what about everyone you?
2: has your bias? Uh, I did originally have it at nine. I'm going to make it an eight and a half. Uh, oh, I did. Split. I, right in the middle, I, eh? I did. Uh, I did a, like the atmosphere is great. Like again, um, the the camera work and all the the labor involved in making the way this movie looks is absolutely like out of this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really do. And again, it's clear. Like each act is is a clearly a different environment, and I, I appreciated that. Like again, like I said at yeah. the very beginning, especially with that like Baroque style. Uh, you know, Williams piece. I was expecting, and, and just like with that anywhere, it, I mean, it was Zurich, but it could have been anywhere in Europe and it felt like checkpoint Charlie. It felt like a cool movie right off the bat. Yeah. And, and, and so they had the atmosphere very well, it kind of reminded me of the opening uh, and, and, and other French
1: Connection, actually. Yeah, like, exactly. Like when absolutely. the guy goes to his apartment and he has to buy he bought groceries yeah, and exactly. and he gets like shot right there. I thought in that too. And, yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. I was totally thought that too. I I agree with you. Uh, so again, the atmosphere I, I thought was very good. I'm I'm like I said, I'm giving it an eight. Um, you can really feel like each each different spot had its own feel to it obviously and uh i mean and we've already like talked at length at the at the second act in, in arizona and that stuff like mm-hmm. that but obviously mm-hmm. the atmosphere there was very different and it was well done um and but obviously the best part the climax pun intended the apex if you will the summit <laughs> uh being being the uh, zenith being Iger, <laughs> the zenith uh, <laughs> Uh, is obviously uh, the Eiger and uh, in, in, in Switzerland and and all those locations there because it's just absolutely incredible how they were able to do all those shots, especially you know being 1975 where they did not have all the technology they do today. You know of, of uh, you know the drones and stuff that we would have today and and, and uh, better equipment yes. is yes. that the yeah, it. It makes you appreciate the atmosphere because of what they did and how, to, and how they and how they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, it, it was. Uh, I just felt like the atmosphere in this film was probably the the strongest part of the entire film itself. It's like mm-hmm. they really made you feel each environment and each different location very well.
0: Right, so um, how does this work then, guys? As one of our three non-Bonds, we we started off with Mission Impossible, uh, we went to Ronan, now we got the Iger Sanction. Three very different movies. Very different. How uh, how do we how did we like how this worked? Our three non-Bonds. Will we do it next season? I think so.
1: I, I think so too. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe yeah, you maybe later on, maybe a, a later season. Uh, one, if we can. I mean, it depends on what we have planned for the next couple of months, right? Mm-hmm. Well, like listen. When, when does the second season end? Does it end when when finally no time to die comes out?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, man. Um, we got to end before that because that thing yeah. might be pushed again. We'll see. Um, we yeah. will see. But we've got some more ideas for Bond by numbers. We've got a few more episode ideas coming down the pipeline over the next couple of months. So stay on the lookout for those and let us know what you thought about the Iger sanction or any of the three non-bonds or any of the episodes that this year do you agree that you know um the Iger sanction is a problem film or do you think that we should just
1: let this stuff go because it's 1975 and that's the way it was and then and just yeah learn from the past and, yeah. and move on you know like tricky and yeah it's, it's it's hard to say i mean this is still history it's still like you know like we have the lens of the of today to look to, to look at it mm-hmm. so we have to consider that you know
0: you know how seriously can can we criticize a, a picture for yeah. you know 45 years old for doing the stuff that eventually led to um you know more liberating thoughts like it like you're saying it's all point on a continuum right yeah it's all that's correct point in history i, I, so.
2: I just thought it was really weird what like this yeah. the one part where he there he's making out with jemima he's like yeah i thought i had given up rape i'm like what yeah, I know, but right? Does like, it, like what where did that does come Adeline from? does that line even mean? You're not <laughs> raping her. She wants to fuck you. Yes. What does yeah. that, and then, what is I was that like like, what, what does that even mean? And then also, like, he's like, watch my dog doesn't rape him. I'm like, what is going on here?
1: <laughs> I, I wonder if that's, more, if that's more of, like, the parody coming through, like, from the original it like could be that, but, but a rape joke something. is never funny no, but like, well one
2: a rape joke isn't really funny no. I mean I guess it's a lot more funny in 1975 but the thing is it's like <laughs> it must be
0: because it well, fucking why hits would he say off. I
2: thought I gave I gave up rape I'm like well obviously if she's into you and she wants to screw you and it's consensual that's like literally the opposite
1: uh-huh. Uh-huh.
2: Uh-huh. Yes.
0: of rape so why
2: does he I'm say like, it what, what benefit is there to the character
0: what what benefit is there to that's the that's why I was like what was the point of this I don't know is it just to get that word in there Because because that's part of the parody of Bond, like taking advantage of women or something or I don't know.
2: Maybe. But I was like I just didn't
1: I was like, What?
0: It was weird. It was weird. You're absolutely right.
1: It's important to know I think even though not intentionally and maliciously you know we we were Mm -hmm. wrong at those times on 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 their attitudes Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you know it it, it can't it it can't be improved yes and i think having access to stuff like this so that we can see the difference Mm -hmm. so that we can see the subtleties that occur that allow this kind of thought process to occur Mm -hmm. then we can pinpoint them and I, i think it's better than straight out you know like just like writing them off completely yeah like uh, from yeah, them.
2: yeah and, exactly exactly because that's what I yeah when we're watching those awkward scenes whether it be Jack Cassidy or other other yeah. scenes like that when you hear the dialogue or how they're portraying or how they're acting yes. or what they do it makes you like it makes and you I think totally about I totally
1: agree it. that if you know for example that Gone with the Wind should be taken down and then put back up with a disclaimer with about the matter. Exactly. Well, it, comes, or, you
0: know, it comes to that story of, like, you know, very, very um, timely right now, doesn't it? About all of the statues and what do you do with monuments and whatnot. And, yeah. You know, I think it is very much like you're saying, Josh, about in- instead of destroying, just rebrand and tell tell a more com- complex, yes. complete story. I- exactly. Uh, as, as
1: anyone, uh, like, I myself am uh, interested in history. Like, I love reading about the Wars of the Roses or about, you know, like classical Greece and ancient Rome. And i know those people were morally not great people like they they were not i mean they didn't really know the difference because of the culture that they that -hmm. that they lived in and they didn't have the judeo christian values that even though you know that we still espouse that we espouse today that led to in my opinion uh you know this kind of more progressive culture that we're in now Mm -hmm. that uh you know that wants to you know look back and and change and make us better Mm -hmm. people And Mm -hmm. that's what humanity is i think it's 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 we're still on the ongoing evolution we're bettering ourselves as we go along. Mm. But we should also remember where we came from and how far yeah. we came. I think that's mm. very important.
0: So, uh, Jeff, any, any closing comments then?
2: Um, I, I did enjoy the film. Again, I, I was more surprised that the uh, a, a little bit disappointed however that doesn't mean that i didn't like the film i did enjoy it mm-hmm. i was just more like oh i was expecting to be more espionage than it was
0: yeah it starts but, off that but, way doesn't it yeah. yes and but part of me was
2: expecting more of uh of an espionage thriller but i but going forward and watching the film as it was i did appreciate it almost more to the 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 actual filming and uh on the production of of the film and 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 how you can now see how this was actually quite a good stepping stone for eastwood and and how he is very much a stickler for for everything going forward as a director mm-hmm. yes. i think this is a real a sort of big a footnote and uh you know if you want to put like a bookmark in his probably in 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 his um in his uh biography or in his uh if you want to say in his portfolio mm-hmm. this is a this is a pretty important one just from the actual production and 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 how he gets things done because we all know that he's very passionate and he he likes to get everything right and he's a stickler and I think this is a very good example of that early on in his, his career, hi. Uh in his career.
0: Well you were twenty two point five, Jeff. Josh, you were twenty one and I was at twenty three. So same same ballpark. Um we're
2: all I, on the same page.
0: But you yeah, you wouldn't expect you would expect though that uh, I'd probably be a touch above having recommended it. But I think it fits well within the bond uh peripherum, if that's a word. Periphera. Peripherum. the galaxy. Yeah, sure. yeah. But uh it, it, it it's in it's in it, it's not one of the orbiting planets but it's like the it belongs in the in the asteroid belt doesn't it between a couple of planets yeah, really- <laughs> and I,
2: and I, I had mentioned this to you i think before we were recording but at first when you said Iger, i was like i think that's someone with the climbing because I, I like i knew yeah. it and then i was thinking or is it the one where it has to do with like soviet russia and mm. i looked it up and it was <laughs> firefox not the browser uh, and I was like, oh no, okay, it's this one <laughs> <laughs> the other the yeah, other movie the sequel's
1: called Google Chrome yeah exactly
0: well, I'll tell you guys the other movie I was thinking about uh, recommending and a movie that I might do if we do this again is the Russia House with Sean Connery
1: oh yeah, yeah nice. I
0: might might go down that road we'll see we'll see yeah. I,
1: I, think... I was thinking of maybe the yeah. the born identity that was because uh, that, that was a big uh, breakthrough movie of the time period as well Sure, yeah and, yeah. and, it, and it definitely um uh, it's a very good uh, movie overall mm-hmm. and it definitely launched a whole new interest in the spy franchise and it led to mm-hmm. Casino Royale in my opinion as well
0: yeah well certainly to that to that uh, rebranding of the bond franchise yes. with uh, with Craig yeah. uh, well, Let us know what you think, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Let us know what you think. Uh, Catch us up on Facebook or Instagram, uh, Twitter even. Uh, Let us know. Email us at bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com. Did these selections of the three non-bonds work for you? Or would you like to see something different maybe if we come back to this next season? We've got some good episodes planned for the future. Uh, Bond by Numbers will return And if you're looking for something else to listen to, uh, BFG has got a a great new podcast he's just started, Josh, haven't you, on uh, the Peloponnesian War and the history of the two warring parties?
1: Yes, uh, I have a podcast uh, I've just been starting. Um, Mm -hmm. Two episodes are already available on iTunes and Spotify or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The uh, the podcast is called Free the Greeks, Mm -hmm. and it's a history, this is all on the Peloponnesian War. Uh, the famous 27-year conflict between Mm -hmm. uh, Athens and Sparta.
0: And your first two episodes kind of set the foundation for the civilizations to be discussed. Well,
1: yeah, the first three, uh, definitely. Like, the first Mm -hmm. episode is an introduction, kind of. And the second episode is on the history of Athens leading up to just before the beginning of the classical period. And Mm -hmm. the current episode I'm working on now is going to be on Sparta, on their culture, Mm because I want to basically set up the two protagonists of this war uh, so everyone can understand uh, the actual blow-by-blow yeah, blow of uh, of the show. Nice. That makes and sense. That's a good
0: idea. You can check out uh, check out those first couple episodes if you want. And, Josh, you and I have got our Light in the Pipes show coming up again with another episode on Farewell, My Lovely, the second Philip Marlowe novel by Raymond Chandler. That'll be fun, and that'll be out in a, about a week's time, hopefully. And, yep. Jeff, are uh, you listening to anything good you can recommend? We've just we've just done shameless plugs. Have you got have you got <laughs> any any recommendations?
2: Uh, no,
0: actually no. I, I
2: don't have any. Recommendations. <laughs> okay, right on. Well, you can just cut the. Uh,
0: right, you can yeah. go back you can go back and watch some listen to some of our, our earlier shows. Then how's that? I, I
1: will that. do that. So it's like a meta shameless plug.
0: Yeah. There you go. Right. <laughs> anyway, uh, all jokes aside, everybody, thank you very much for listening, and do take care of yourselves as we uh, continue to struggle through and I think maybe adjust better to the COVID nineteen lockdown and pandemic.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: You're right well. Eiger yep. sanction executed.
1: There we go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Take care and goodbye. Cheers. Good All the best. See
1: you guys.